0: I would advise any writer to go find something that gives them instant gratification, whether it's art or cooking or just something where the reward is right then. Because it would be so great if a whole crowd of people start cheering behind you when you write Mm -hmm. a great sentence, right? But it doesn't happen.
1: Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Have you heard about the ship of Theseus? It's a useful thought experiment from ancient Greece. Now, used for a yearly pilgrimage by ancient Athenians, the legendary ship of the demigod Theseus underwent periodic reparations and maintenance. And this led to a question raised by ancient Greek philosophers. If every single plank of the original ship has been replaced, can it still be called the ship of Theseus? In case you follow my art on Instagram, or if you're among the thousands of readers on my Substack, you will have noticed a shift in my art style this month. If you're a listener of this show, over the next few weeks, you will see a similar shift on this podcast. But if you have been on this journey with me a while, you can rest assured that it is the same show. And I am the same person. I want to thank all the listeners who've encouraged me to take a break over summer, and those who tuned into old episodes while I was away. I want to thank Sneaky Art Insiders, a group that has doubled in the last six months, whose support means that I have the mandate to back my ideas and to push forward with my curiosity. A special shout out to insiders Kate and Michelle, both of whom I met in Seattle for the first time during my workshop at Pike Place Market earlier this month. The big question behind today's episode is this How does a creative person actually get things done? I speak with a writer and artist whose creative trajectory reads much like the Ship of Theseus problem. Amy Stewart is the author of multiple New York Times best selling books. Her work spans many genres, and she is not an expert in any one of them. She established herself as a writer with Flower Confidential, Wicked Plants, and The Drunken Botanist, before changing lanes to historical fiction. Last week, I finished the first of her seven-book story about sisters living in 19th century America, and it was so good, I immediately borrowed book number two from the Vancouver Public Library. Today's conversation is about having the courage to back your creativity and also the conviction to change tracks completely. You might think this episode is rather long, and definitely it is longer than some of my recent episodes, but form always follows function on this podcast, so I can assure you that it is just the right length. Amy simply has that many incredible things to say. Maybe the best, the most useful, Some of the most enlightening sections of this episode are in the last one hour and a half, but to truly imbibe its goodness, I think it's essential that you follow the full journey of this conversation. In the show notes, I do my best to break down the many subjects and themes that we covered. Use it so you don't miss any of the good stuff. At the end, really, this is just a conversation about one and a half things. Keep listening and soon you will know exactly what I mean. And so generally, uh, before I do the hello and welcome and we get into it, uh, I this time i it might not even be about art <laughs> like i'm just so eager to know so many things that i we may not even get to the drawings and the paintings and uh, i think that's okay like i think my first the first time i spoke with jim richards also i think we just barely touched on the subject of urban sketching cuz we were just talking about everything else right and i'm really happy to do that if you're also really happy to do that because i want to talk about trees and i want to talk about flowers and all of those things and uh, hopefully you can fulfill my curiosity and give me lots of trivia. How does that sound?
0: Sure, yeah. Well, um art might come into it because it's sort of connected to some of those things. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. It so it'll, we'll
1: it'll I'll keep trying to bring us to back to it in little ways.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: Okay. So, um yeah, let's let's just do the formal introduction. Uh, hello Amy and welcome to the Sneaky Art podcast. I'm delighted to speak to you today.
0: I'm glad to talk to you too. I love the podcast, so uh, this is going to be fun.
1: Yes, I, it absolutely is. Uh, Amy, uh, the kind of urban sketchers I love to speak to, the kind of urban sketchers I love to meet, and I often tell uh, my artist colleagues this same thing, that the most interesting kind of urban sketchers for me are not necessarily people who are full-time artists or who whose primary creative expression is their art, but I find interesting all the people who include art in their life in various interesting ways. People who have other things they could be doing and other things that they are doing, but still choose to include this activity of sitting down by a street side and making a drawing as part of their day. And they find something in it. So this is how we met. We met in Amsterdam when we happened to be living uh, for a couple of weeks right next to each other. And we met on the streets of Amsterdam and you were standing somewhere making a drawing and you could have been doing so many other things. So I guess what I'm most curious about and what I want this conversation to be about amongst all the other wonderful things you do is how and why art is a part of your life as a person and as a writer. So maybe you could, we could just start with just just that little thing. How, what, what role does it play in your life, in your creative expression?
0: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's kind of changed over time. But, you know, one thing is that uh, when I was a kid, my brother was the artist. Right. You know, I think I think kids do this terrible thing where they sort themselves into camps like, well, I can't be the artist because my brother's that. So I'm this other thing. So like I was the writer and he was the artist. And and uh, my mother, uh, my mother painted and drew some. Uh, My dad was a musician. So there was a lot of arts in our family. But I always kind of thought, well, that's not for me. Like I don't draw pictures. Um, And it wasn't until I was about 30 that I really thought, you know, I kind of would like to learn to draw, but it was mostly so I could draw like little pictures in my garden. Like, I think I had picked up a book about nature journaling or nature sketching. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, like that would be a cool thing to learn how to do. Um, but I had no idea how to do it. And I wasn't sure that I could, or I didn't know how it worked. And uh, there was nowhere for me to take an art class in this. I was living in Eureka, California, a small town. a this is a little bit before online classes, that hadn't quite happened yet. And sort of the only thing I could do was to take an oil painting class. There was this teacher, her name's Linda Mitchell and I love her work. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not sure oil painting is for me but there's sort of nothing else going on. So I guess I'll take this class. Um, but what I found is that oil painting is a lot like writing. Uh, it's, it's all about revision, right? You put a layer down, you wipe it off. You put another one on, you go, I'll change that later. You let it dry, you come back and change it. You take more off, you put more on. And that's what writing is. So immediately it was very familiar to me. You know, like in the early days of the class, she would come up behind me and say, you need to wipe all that off and start over again. And I'd go, okay, and I'd wipe it off because I'm, I have flown away 300 page manuscripts before. So it's nothing to me to wipe off 10 minutes worth of oil painting, right? Like other students in the class were like, I can't wipe it off. And it's like, it's gone. So I love that process, but it didn't get me any closer to sitting outside with a sketchbook because they're very different skills. So it's been a, over the last twenty years, really, it's been this effort of taking classes and sort of learning how to do it and figuring out what I like to do and why. But it's always been a hobby. It's very much been a. a, a I, I feel like your hobbies need hobbies in a way, right? Or your 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 art needs your art needs a, a distraction. So, like as a writer. Um, Drawing and painting so different because it's nonverbal, you can go outside and do it, you can do it with friends, you can do it standing up, you can listen to music while you do it. So in every way, it's different from, um, from writing books. And so it's kind of like it's my break from that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely resonate with that this last thought like so much of what you said but also particularly this that you know uh, your hobbies need hobbies yeah. and sometimes you like I I do this thing I play them off each other because I have responsibilities both as a writer and as an artist and sometimes I'm I'm really good at procrastination you should know uh, and I uh, what I do is I play one Uh, one uh, activity against the other. So I procrastinate on one by doing the other. And then I procrastinate on that one by doing this one. And using this strategy of competitive procrastination, I am just somehow able to get things sort of kind of done and uh, yeah. this this is why i really liked what you said about you know getting different things from it and using one uh, like like to to sort of jump from one to the other was such an interesting thing to me and also like before you were talking about being young and wanting to sort uh, to make your own identity and then you sort of Unnecessarily in hindsight, unnecessarily, mm-hmm. but at that time you strive to not be what other people around you already are, like they've already grabbed these roles so right. I need to have something else so in this in this in this system, tell me how the writing came in, what were your early interests, what was the motivation how what did you start to write
0: well, i you know I mean, I was one of those kids who, if you had asked me when I was five what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said a writer um. So I was a very early reader, like a very precocious, you know, early reader. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of always my thing. It was always the thing I wanted to do. I didn't know how to go about that. I, I didn't understand what the steps were. It's not like you say I want to be a doctor. Anyone can tell you what the steps are to go do that. Um, and uh, this was actually, I didn't realize this until just recently. I, I, I used to sort of ask myself, like, why didn't I go get an MSA? And I only just recently found out that MFAs were kind of not a thing in the late 80s. They weren't. So so I didn't even know exactly what you did education wise other than get an English degree. Um, So, yeah. So I just always had this idea that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what that was going to be writing a whole book or anything. Book length seemed so intimidating to me. So I just didn't know. And I ended up even not getting an English degree and uh, and and getting, you know, I just had a job. I had a day job. Um, I sat in a cubicle for a living. But I was always kind of writing on the side. So it was a very murky, not clear path, I would say, in the beginning.
1: That's That's really interesting, you know, because what you're talking about, it feels like it feels like a different world to a lot of people now. And I feel like I was one of the last people to grow up in that old world in which you don't have all the information of the world at your fingertips. <laughs> right. Like, like you know, I, I want to be a writer. How do I become a writer? You can't yeah. just there, you can't Google it.
0: You can't Google it. You just have to know someone to ask. You know, nowadays, it's almost a parlor game. Like maybe you do this when you're traveling. You know, sometimes my husband and I will be sitting there and we'll go, Why? Why do they do th- this at Amsterdam? Or we'll ask ourselves, you know, like, what are the rules for these little tiny cars that can ride in the bike lanes? And someone reaches for their phone, and I'm like, let's not look it up. Let's try to find another way to learn this information. Like, we could yeah. ask the waiter, and they would probably <laughs> tell us. But it's almost like a game. But yeah, exactly. There was no way to Google it. And, and I didn't know a writer. I didn't know anyone to ask. Uh, and what would they have told me anyway, honestly? About how to go—the only thing anyone can say about, like, how to make a living as a writer is they might have said, well, you could make a living as an English teacher, if that's what you mean. And then you can sort of write on the side, but there's no, like, straight path here. So I don't know. What good would it have done me to know that anyway?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I, so as soon as you said, like I knew from the age of five that I wanted to be a writer and I thought about my childhood because as soon as I knew that it, there was such a thing as being a writer, that my books didn't simply arrive from somewhere and they were just these things, you know, that a human being sat down and wrote them and they wrote more books and this is the thing that people do. I wanted to be a writer too. Like that's all I've ever wanted to do. And I also didn't have these models of uh, what, what, you know, to prescribe a path to me to tell me what is the what are the different ways you can do it, even to tell me how it's unrealistic, and you should, you know, do do something else instead, right. like, I didn't even have that much. So I, I like it was a lot of uh, time before I figured out that, hey, I can also still write, like, I remember distinctly this moment in my early teens, and I think it's so late, it's my early teens, when I realized that I'm allowed to also write stories. And I can just write a book, and that would then be a book. Yeah. Apparently, like uh, so, th- there's this notion of things that you can do. There is this notion of things you're allowed to do, and your society and your circumstances and all of these things kind of, kind of shape it and uh, puts or cert- take certain things out of consideration. Don't even show you certain other things, and then you you go along this path until other things sort of fall into place and open other doors to you so right. uh, tell me a little bit about these various interests that people would now know you by then like people immediately when i read your bio i see a best selling author i see that the books are about gardens and plant life and even insect life and this interest in horticulture in botany in in the natural world in urban spaces also and then there is the, the other books, are completely different about historical fiction. So how did how do these interests come to your life and how did how did you grow into starting to express them? Like from not being not knowing how to be a writer to giving yourself this space to write a book, to write a novella to begin with, and then to write about flowers.
0: Well, you know, um I actually, I didn't have really any interest in uh, gardening or the natural world uh, growing up. I grew up in Texas. It's super hot there. There's this thing called yard work where someone has to go outside and cut the grass. Um, That was not me. That was my brother. So, so really I I had nothing to draw on, Um, but I moved to Santa Cruz, California after college and it's beautiful there. And it's, you can everything blooms year round. It's like, you can't, not have a garden in Santa Cruz. It's just so gorgeous. So, I did. You know, I just started going to the garden center and sticking stuff in the ground. That's what that was. Um, but in terms of writing about it, what had happened actually is that when I lived in, I went to school at UT Austin, and uh, when I lived in Austin, the alternative weekly paper there is called the Austin Chronicle, and there was a um, a column in the Chronicle about food but it wasn't really about food it was like this guy's complicated personal life and all this stuff that was going on and it kind of eventually would work around and become about food and um it was written under a pen name that which i didn't even at the time like the pen name was petaluma pete obviously his <laughs> mother did not name him petaluma pete right <laughs> but it didn't occur to me at the time that uh this was made up that someone was that it was fiction. And it wasn't really until sort of the column came to an end and and there was sort of a farewell column that I finally got it. Like, wait, you can make stuff up. And it can be it can be about a real thing, which is food, the food scene in Austin specifically, but it can also be about a made-up thing. It can be both of those things. And you can write that every week and it can it can be in the paper. Like, what is that? So um, I loved that idea and just this really lively, interesting writing that was sort of about two different things. Or there's actually there's a columnist. Um, I'm not sure he's still writing for the San Francisco uh, Chronicle, but uh, he he was a few years ago. John Carroll, who liked to say that a good column is about one and a half things, uh-huh. and and I think we can take this today and apply it to our you know our Substack newsletters or our blog yeah. posts or whatever. Then it's about one and a half things. So I took that idea and so I was kind of writing about my garden, but I was also kind of writing about, uh, my life or w- life in Santa Cruz or, or whatever. And, uh, again, this is, I'm really doting myself, but there weren't even blogs yet. There, right. there was nothing. So there was a little, uh, newspaper in Santa Cruz, a little feminist newspaper that would print just about anything anyone sent them. So this was not a competitive thing for me to become their garden writer, um, I would drop off a little disc on this woman's porch. There wasn't even email. So I'm, I'm like leaving a disc on her front porch every Thursday and it would run. So I wrote that little column and that became my first book, which was a memoir about my garden in Santa Cruz. And so I can honestly say like, oh, I really wanted to write a book. Like it didn't matter that it was about gardening. If I had been interested in something else, I would have written a book about that, right? If I'd been into cooking or surfing or knitting or whatever, that's what I would have written about. So really all my books about the plant world have in a way been like an excuse to write another book about something. Like I'm more interested in the books. So the reason I make that point is that like sometimes, uh, like, you know, people get in touch with me and they'll want to talk to me about the subject of a book I wrote 10 years ago. And it's sort of like, I'm not really interested in that anymore. Like, you know, if you're this sort of author, like you're super into barbecue. And so you've written a bunch of books about barbecue and you run a barbecue restaurant and you host barbecue competitions, like your life is barbecue and the books are just part of your barbecue universe, right? (laughs) That's not me. Like my universe is the books and what they're about is just, that's a thing for me to put inside the container that is a book. And I want to make more of those.
1: That is a very interesting image like I'm thinking about how like I'm thinking about this with respect to this excellent quote by the way a good column is about one and a half things yeah and uh like it's it's such an important distinction so growing up in Texas and then moving not being around like plant life and gardening early how did it become such a significant uh, thing for you
0: yeah well You know, everybody needs a hobby, right? So, I mean, really, we we were, we rented this fabulous little bungalow in Santa Cruz with a view of the ocean and the, uh, and, you know, the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, the little seaside amusement park that's there. And everyone up and down our street on every side of us had these little gardens that were just overflowing with flowers, right? Mm -hmm. It's just constant blue. So, I just think it was sort of impossible for me not to go to the garden center and get something. And so really, it's a, it's a type of shopping, you know, really like a garden is a place to put the plants you've bought. So you go off to the garden center on Sunday morning and you load up a wagon full of whatever looks fabulous and you come home and spend the day finding places for it, um, often the wrong place, which is how you learn like, oh, that thing can't live in the shade. And uh, that was really it. I mean, honestly, it was it was a hobby that involved going shopping for pretty plants and bringing them home and trying to figure out how to grow them. And and that's what I did on the weekends. I had sort of a boring desk job. Um, So this was, you know, that was my weekend.
1: Yeah. And uh, what I find so uh, interesting about this hobby is that it is, From end to end, it is about delayed gratification. And (laughs) it feels like it is such a difficult hobby to get into now because in order to get into it, I would first try to get all the information about it, what I need to do, what I need to become, exactly the kind of changes it would bring into my life before I take even the first step towards (laughs) it. And I would need, I would have all these plans already about the plants I want and the ones I can grow. And I might try to fill my head up with all this information about what grows in the shade and what doesn't before I take the first step. But to get into a hobby before this, this short term, uh, immediate gratification mindset has sort of infiltrated all of our minds. Like it's everywhere now. Every single human being is affected by that now. Before that, like it's such a it's such a different kind of world in which to pick up a hobby in which the fruits, literal and metaphorical, are in the future. Like you are going to and it's it's just you. It's there's no the the idea of the of performing on a stage does not exist quite in the same way.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this is a definite personality test is what this is, because like I was driven purely by impulse, I would just go down to the garden center and see what they had and bring it home and and give it a try. So there was no planning involved and there was no research <laughs> ahead of time. I mean, and, and, but this is a real thing in the gardening world. Like if you're someone who really plans ahead, you might, for instance, plan out an entire landscape for your front yard where you would decide ahead of time what all the plants are going to be, You know, don't plant them until the fall because that's when you're supposed to really put things in the ground. Give them enough space between each plant for their final mature size as opposed to just cramming in as many things as you can, you know, and letting them kind of fight it out. So, yeah, like I was exactly the opposite of what you're describing. Like I just... And, you know, and sort of like art supplies, like, you know, go down to the art supply store and <laughs> fall in love with something and buy a bunch of it and bring it home having no idea how it works, what right. you do with it Right. Um, versus, oh, no, I'm not going to get into this until I've taken a class in it and I've tried it out and really thinking and planning ahead. I'm much more of a like let's go down to the art supply store and see what they've got. <laughs> and I come home with a set of like, you know, color crayons or something. Right. And I'm like, I don't even know what these are, but look how pretty they are. <laughs>
1: so so uh, uh, now once you've started this garden and you've got things going and you've learned some things from trial and error, uh, how do you, how do you like formalize this in some way? Now do you start, do you start like, uh, in order to write the book about it? Like your book is from the ground up. Um did you then start to do some research? Did you try to fill in some of this DIY knowledge with like actual uh, science and ideas like that?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, well, the first book was a memoir, and uh, and this was at a very particular moment. You know, one thing: if you're going to write a book, it's helpful to know what sort of books people are buying right then and what publishers mm-hmm. are interested in. And mm-hmm. so this was at a very particular moment where there were sort of these charming lifestyle memoirs coming out. Like I think you know, Under the Tuscan Sun was probably very popular right at that moment. And so I was very much going to write a book about me and my sort of foibles as a first-time gardener. Uh, And so that didn't really require a lot of knowledge. In fact, it was the opposite of that. And it was more, you know, writing a memoir is more about the challenge of um, creating a a character that is kind of you, but also not exactly you, you know, a version of you. (laughs) Like, in my case, maybe a more naive uh, version of of myself. And then creating characters out of the other people in your life and figuring out what the drama and conflict and sort of personal quest is that's going to carry people through the book. So it's much less about any sort of actual facts. <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I was not too bothered with, you know, there's not a lot of here's how to grow a tomato in that book, for sure.
1: Right. And uh, it... It sounds to me almost like gardening and writing resonate so well with each other in this in this approach, like getting, getting a book done, like to start with the things that you have and the things that you know about and then to play with them and then to see, like you say, to see where the drama lies and then to uh, like put this situation where they play off each other, like to create Uh, drama and narrative and plot. And a lot of it seems like just like gardening also like to go with your instincts and then Mm -hmm. to see take one step at a time like that.
0: It is a lot of trial and error for sure. And um, going down a lot of blind alleys and being willing to accept that a lot of things aren't going to work out. (laughs) Um, And it is a long term. I mean, that is the thing about writing a book is and I'm just now finishing my 14th book. And and even now, when I started, you know, a year ago, I was just beginning this thing, and I just thought, how am I ever going to do this? Like, how am I going to pull this off? How is this ever going to become a three hundred page thing? I just I I can't even imagine it. it seems insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, but but and because it's a long term deal, nobody sits down to write a book. You can sit down to write a page right? <laughs> and that's what you can do, or a paragraph even. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there's definitely, I definitely there's that element in gardening as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't go out one day and plant um, whatever, a full harvest, you go out and you plant a few seeds and a year from now, maybe that's going to turn into something. So, and it, it is about having sort of a vision for what it can become and knowing that that's going to happen very incrementally and very slowly over time.
1: The rest of Amy's answer was cut off by a broken connection. Um, It was just a few minutes and we resumed immediately. But as happens in such situations, we completely lost the flow of what we were talking about. So we begin with a new question. Apologies for the interruption. Uh, So uh, I think generally we can resume on the the subject of how even after 13 books... The prospect of writing book number 14, you say, still seems insurmountable. Like, I don't get it. Is it not supposed to get easier at some point? No,
0: it never gets easier. And you'll hear other writers say this, that uh, that every book, it's like you've never written a book before. Literally, literally like you sit down and you say, how, how does anyone write a book? What do you even do? How does it even work? It's a weird, it's a weird process in that way. You know, the thing about writing, and this is actually, so this is a, a great example of how your hobby needs a hobby. So the thing about writing is it is very delayed gratification. You have no idea how it's going. You can't step back and look at it and in a split second, get an assessment of it. The only way you can know how it's going is to sit and read it, which takes some time, especially if you're, you know, if you're pretty well into it. and. um you lose your ability to uh, have any sort of sense of how your own writing is going as opposed to painting or drawing where you can actually just stand back from it and go, yes, I like the way that looks or no, I don't in a split second. And other (laughs) people can as well. Like someone else could look at your drawing and go, Oh, that's terrific. Or like they might look at it and go, is that supposed to be an elephant? And you're like, Oh no, it's supposed to be a giraffe. I screwed this Mm -hmm. one up. You know, but with writing, you don't get that, and so you feel very kind of lost and adrift and and in the dark uh, through the whole process. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a tough journey, and it does not get easier.
1: <laughs> that is, I don't hey. know if I should be relieved or if I should be horrified because I uh, I when I so I I used to be uh, an engineer before, and I left my PhD program in order to be a writer. And that's it. Like I was going to write novels and I've written five drafts of it and I've never completed it. And every time I started, it was right right from the beginning, and I reached a certain amount, and I just couldn't get to the end. Mm -hmm. But I've told myself that I could come back to it in the future once I know how to do a lot of writing, and then it will be easier. But now I'm finding out that that is not the case. (laughs) Not really. Uh, Incidentally, another thing you said, which was uh, interesting to me about the art was not only is it instant or well, uh, relatively quick gratification for you as the artist, but it's also very easy to get someone to look at it and know if they like it or they don't like it, yeah. which is not the case with writing. And I had this peculiar situation when I had, so I want to be a writer and I've just moved to a completely new country in a in a foreign part of the world that I don't know. So nobody knows me and I have to go about the business of telling people that I'm a writer or I'm trying to be a writer or I want to be a writer. Uh, whatever one of those your imposter syndrome allows you to use. Uh, and... I found that I was also drawing at the time and I was drawing it seemed like my drawings were getting better and better and I found it was easier to lean on the art when talking about myself than on the writing because if I tell you that I'm a writer and you don't know me it will take a lot of cajoling to get you to read like even if you want to read me the idea of giving someone your time who you don't even know to read what they've written is such a big deal inside your mind that okay mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to do this for This person that I met. But even then, it needs like 10, 15 good minutes of Mm -hmm. concentration for them to appreciate you as a writer. But with the art, it would be like a second or five seconds, and you've got them if you've got them, if you're good. And I thought this is, this makes more sense. Like, if I want people to know that I'm doing something and I'm being creative, it's so, it makes sense for me to lean on being an artist for a while because it's so much easier to get people to understand what I'm trying to do. And I can just r- write quietly in the yes. background. And hopefully uh, this process will run itself and I'll have a book. And meanwhile, people might know me as an artist for a bit. Of course, the writing hasn't happened. So part of the reason for this conversation is to help me finish this novel. I hope to to tease out some secrets because I refuse to, at, at this point in the conversation, I refuse to believe that 13 books don't make book number 14 easier. <laughs> it might be true, but I refuse to believe it. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about book number 14 because it's fascinating. It's about tree collectors. Is that yeah. right?
0: Yes, it is. So um,
1: just be- because pretty much everybody listening to this is uninitiated to this topic, as everyone would be, because this is a really bizarre subject. How does one collect trees?
0: Exactly. This is, and let me just tell you, here's, here's a thing I've learned after writing a lot of books. Um, A great, a great trick to do to, to see if your book idea is resonating with people is when they say, what is your next book about? You tell them very short, you know, I'm writing a book about tree collectors. And then you shut up and you see what happens and what and and so I know that this is a good topic because I tell people I'm writing a book about tree collectors and they go, tree tree collectors. So so wait and they and then they explain the book to me. They're like, wait, so people collect trees? You mean like how you collect books or baseball cards? They collect trees, and again, I just don't say anything. I just sit there smiling, and then they go well, how would that work exactly? So, you know, and they start to paint it, and I'm like, perfect, perfect. Like this is both a thing that no one's ever thought about before, but the minute you tell it to them, they start to have questions and they're intrigued. Like, I love that combination. Yeah, so,
1: they, they're writing out the table of contents for you.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, and so what happened in this case is that about 10 years ago, I was doing an event for one of my other books at a museum on the East Coast and a guy came up to me and told me that he was a tree collector. And I was like, well, that's a weird thing to collect because, you know, they're really big and they're like hard to move. And he goes, yeah, well, I'm just trying to get one of every kind of tree that I can possibly get to grow here in Pennsylvania. And uh, I just plant them in rows like, you know, books on a bookshelf. Like that, that's what I do. And I just thought that was interesting. And uh, I sort of held on to that idea. You know, this, this will happen. someone makes some chance remark and you go, huh, that's intriguing. And you sort of file it away. My husband is a rare book dealer. So, uh, of course, I mentioned it to him because he's interested in collectors and collecting of all types. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few years later, I met a second tree collector. And uh, a few years after that, a third person told me that they were a tree collector. And once I had three, I began to think, oh, maybe this could be a book. But I couldn't, I couldn't quite see it as a book. So another challenge that happens when you are trying to decide whether something's a book or not is you sort of have to go like, do I really have enough here? Is this a book or is this just a, an article? Maybe this, a, maybe this is an article or an essay. Maybe it's a something else. Right. Um, and so it was always one of those ideas that wasn't quite a book. And then when, um, when COVID came along, I spent a, a bunch of time not writing any books and making art instead. And my art skills kind of improved a little and I started using different media and trying out different things. Uh, and it was at that point that I finally was willing to listen to my agent's advice that I should illustrate a book of mine. I very much pushed mm-hmm. back against that. But... um she, uh, she kept saying, oh, you should illustrate. But I, did, I was like, you know, I'm just not doing the kind of art that lends itself to illustration. It's, you know, and I'm not as good as you think I am. You only see the ones that work out. You don't see the dozens <laughs> that, that look terrible. Um, and I don't want to make myself miserable doing art and turn it into a day job. I had all these reasons. But then I started thinking back on all these book ideas I'd had that weren't quite a book. And mm-hmm. suddenly when I conceived of them as, an, as a kind of a gifty illustrated book, it sort of made sense. I was like, oh, now I get it. Like now I see right. what this package is and now this makes sense. So with a tree collector's book, um, I'm drawing pictures of the people. So I'm doing portraits of them and also... Of their trees. And it's little interviews with each person about what they collect and why and how. So, all these questions you have, this is a very roundabout way of saying, like, all these questions you have, you know, those are the questions that I got to ask all of these um, tree collectors. And, you know, so in a lot of cases, these are people who have a lot of land and they can fill it up with as many beautiful and interesting trees as they want. Um, And tree collectors tend to coalesce around certain types of trees. So the conifer collectors, because conifers are very diverse and weird looking and come from many places around the world. Maple collectors, again, it's, maples are very diverse and there's a lot to do with maples. Oak trees, same deal. Uh, palm trees and sort of other tropical trees. And then fruit trees. So if you're a tree collector, you're probably collecting one of those things.
1: That's, right. that's
0: what people tend to get into. But And so you can imagine you'd have a big, beautiful piece of land. You'd fill it with all this. So a lot of them are people like that, but I didn't want it to just be a book of like rich folks and their beautiful landscapes. Right. That's, that's not interesting. So Mm -hmm. in some cases it's uh, people who like, there's a pine cone collector and her whole collection fits in some plastic boxes that she can store under the bed. And, um, and there are people whose entire collection is in little tiny pots and So, you know, there's other ways of being a tree collector. And there's also like tree cataloging projects, like you just stumbled across one in in Vancouver. And so another way that you can be a collector is to go around and catalog trees and sort of name them. You make them into a collection through the act of cataloging and identifying them. Rather than the
1: act of ownership, necessarily.
0: Yeah, you don't have to own them. They can be out in the world. They can be in an urban landscape, um, Mm -hmm. whatever. So, yeah, so there's definitely people who don't have the big sp- spread of, lo- you know, a big lavish landscape. Like, it doesn't have to be that, although, you know, some of them are.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting on so many levels, because firstly, I'm, uh, I love that you also address this fact that it's not just about people with a lot of land and a lot of uh, well presumably if they're not even taking care they could it, there could be circumstances in which they have specialists taking care of them but you are you also have people who are cataloging yes. and i like just for the people who don't know i want to talk about this tree library that i found out about so mm-hmm. i live right next to queen elizabeth park in vancouver and it's a beautiful park and just like uh, amy was talking about growing up in texas and not having this necessary bonding with nature through gardening while growing up. I grew up in a very densely packed city and I didn't like, I didn't have a relationship with the nature around me. Like I never thought about what kind of tree is this. I just, trees were just part of my dense urban and increasingly more dense every year urban landscape. But having moved to this part of the world, the Pacific Northwest, and I'm here for the first time in my life for the last one and a half years, I've started to notice trees (laughs) And these trees do all kinds of different things around the year. So I have cherry blossoms near my house and they uh, blossom and shed multiple times in spring over the course of spring. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that. Um, There are trees that looked a certain way during the summer and the spring and they take on a completely different look in the winter. They even do different things, like even the way that I relate to them is different in different parts of the year. So for all kinds of various reasons, and not even just their appearance or the biological nomenclature and the details around where they're from, these trees were fascinating to me. And then I learned about this tree library, which is a person who cataloged all the trees... Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the trees in Canada, but specifically geotagged all the trees in Queen Elizabeth Park. And these are fascinating trees because they're just like a collection. They have been brought from all the different parts of the Commonwealth. And they represent the, I guess, in a sense, a tribute to the reach of the colonial empire. And the various places they went and then <laughs> amongst the other things they brought, they brought some trees. So here we can look at some trees. It's it's quite interesting and I have loved walking through it and finding out that a tree is from Chile or from uh, like something from uh, my part of the world. Like there's a lot of Himalayan cedars mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's been it's been really fascinating for me. but. Uh, I have so many questions about what you were talking about, tree collectors. And one of them is that this really seems like the epitome of delayed gratification. At what yes. stage of the tree do you add a tree to your collection? How does that logistically work?
0: Well, this is this is one of the fascinating themes that has come up in this book, is um, really mortality, because your trees are going to outlive you. So there are people whose tree collections consist entirely of trees that they started themselves from seed. So you can imagine talking to somebody who's now maybe in their 70s or, or even in their 80s, and uh, they started planting trees 50 years ago, and they were trees that they, they trekked around and they gathered seed, uh, which is, by the way, not so easy to do anymore, but there was a time <laughs> when you could just go to China and, and start gathering seeds. Um, and now they're surrounded by this forest. you know, A tree can get to a real good height after 50 years, or even after 20 years. So some people start from seed, and of course, a lot of people start from they buy from a nursery or from a uh, you know, a, a tree dealer of some kind, or a swap with a fellow tree collector you know, plants that are a foot or two tall, like that would be sort of standard. But then on the other end, like on the crazy high end, there are people yeah. who move mature trees. Like it is possible to uproot a fully mature tree and put it on the back of a truck and roll it down the street to your place and put it in the ground and it lives. So there's also <laughs> the like crazy, absurd billionaire version of this.
1: That that was the image in my head that I wanted you to validate, like of somebody uprooting a tree with the soil around it and all the roots and then putting it into a truck and then it being driven around the world. And does that really happen? So incredible to know that that happens. You probably, like, I can't even think, like, they have to package the tree in some way. Like, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. not even, I don't even know how to get into thinking about how that works. Like, somebody, sometime potentially in the last 50 years, thought about how to, Yes. How do I package a tree and box it and send it, and it has to live?
0: And, and it actually started. Uh, the I think the first real significant high profile tree movers were associated with the Hearst Castle. Um, uh-huh. So, which uh, which anyone can go visit in San Simeon on the California coast. It's a really absurd grand um, estate, and there was a lot of tree moving that went along with that, which I believe would have been in the 1930s, uh, maybe a little earlier. But anyway, yeah. It's a kind of a high-tech process. Um, it turns out that trees, the roots that go way down tend to be more roots, for uh, stabilizer roots. Mm-hmm. So the roots that are really feeding the tree are actually surprisingly close to the surface. I so see. Uh, for a really huge tree, they trench around it. They make a trench that's at about where the canopy of the tree is, the perimeter of the canopy of the tree. You're an engineer. You'll probably sort of get into this. I know it's a different kind of engineering, but I'm just going to tell you. Um, Please yes yeah yeah. So they trench around it, and then they drive uh, metal pipes into the ground, almost like the types of pipes maybe for plumbing or something. So they have hydraulic right. equipment that can push pipes through soil, and so that's maybe uh, a couple feet below the surface, and and just a solid row of them, so that it forms almost like a raft or a platform, and then they can pull it out using hydraulic equipment. They are able to pull it out and get it onto the back of a truck. And then assuming they've got a clear route (laughs) from where the tree is to where it needs to go, you can imagine power lines, like all kinds of bridges, right? All kinds of things have to be considered here. Yeah. Uh, It's like moving a house. Then they can move it. And of course the hole should already be dug on the other side and they're gonna put it in the ground and water it very well for a long time. And not every tree makes it, but uh, surprisingly a lot of them do. And so this is a thing. And if you had, let's say you live down the country somewhere and you had some big, beautiful trees on your property, it's not unheard of that someone might come knock on the door and say, would you be interested in selling that oak tree in your front yard? I've actually met people. This is one of the things that happens when you tell people what your book is about, is that Mm -hmm. people will pop up with a story. Like I had a guy say, oh, yeah, he grew up in L.A. And he said, I remember one time a guy came and knocked on our door and asked if they could buy the palm tree in our front yard. And my mom sold it to him. She was like, sure, 10,000 bucks, easy. So those things happen.
1: Yeah, wow, wow, yeah. It's weird. Now now I'm thinking about how, you know, you talked about somebody going to China and being able to bring seeds. And of course, you're not able to do that. So I don't want to say you can't do it. I want to say it's not so easy to do it anymore. I'm sure there are people doing this. Um, But uh, so, and the, uh, the idea of these things starting almost as a vanity project in a sense, like somebody having an obsession i can sort of see it but being able to execute this at scale mm-hmm. is a, it's it's an interesting vanity project like i i love that you know these individual human idiosyncrasies hobbies uh things that we're obsessed over and how they how they play themselves out but now you can't bring seeds so is it is it a good thing that it's not so easy for anybody to become a tree collector? Like you can't bring seeds from another part of the world and plant a tree in your backyard. In a sense, what you can grow on your on your space in your city is mandated by your government and the trees that we are exposed to is sort of in a way controlled for us in this way by our urban society? Is is that a better way to go about things for the planet? Or is it kind of good that we have private tree collectors?
0: Well, you know, so wh- here's what's happened is that, uh, yeah, it used to be, you know, a group of botanists and institutions did this too. So a group of botanists from various botanical gardens would all go on a collecting expedition to, let's not just pick on China, but it could be throughout South America. It could be throughout India, throughout various African countries, wherever. Um gathering seeds so that they could grow rare, unusual, hard to find plants or sort of round out their collection or for whatever reason. Uh, what what has happened now, which is a good thing, is that now we have some international protocols in place so that we don't have, um, uh, what do you call it, like bioprospecting, right? So we mm-hmm. don't have particularly European and North American botanists going in. And, uh, and taking, say, the seeds of uh, neem trees is a great example, and uh-huh. and bringing them back and figuring out how to profit on them in a way that the country where the tree was growing doesn't uh, get any sort of credit for. So that's, right. a, that's a piece of it. And then just, yeah, there's some agricultural uh, safety regulations about what should be coming in and out, uh, crossing borders. But it is still possible to go on seed collecting trips around the world. You just need permits and permissions and it tends to be nonprofits or, you know, there's, you can't just as a person go and do it. Now, does that mean that no one is going on a hike and putting seeds in their pocket? No, I'm sure, I'm sure someone out there somewhere is putting a seed in their pocket. But yeah. in terms of like what's, you know, good or bad about any of this, one thing to keep in mind is that there are very rare and threatened trees around the world who that, that they're maybe even growing in only one place in the whole world. And that mm-hmm. place is threatened. It's either threatened by human activity or it's threatened by climate change, uh, maybe threatened by wild, the possibility of wildfires. And so in that case, it's actually a very good thing to do what's called x C two collecting, meaning not on-site, the opposite of on-site, off-site collecting. So, okay. so let's take these genetics and let's make sure we have backup copies around the world, basically, right? Right. So that's a good thing. And that happens with private collectors and it happens with botanical gardens as well. And some of those plants have now become common. In other words, yeah, they may be only growing in the wild in this one remote place, but anybody with a little money to spend can go buy one. And, you know, like there are some of those rare trees just up the street from me here in, in Portland. You can just have them now.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was also thinking that sometimes, you know, uh, you might, uh, if you allow people to simply bring in whatever seeds they like and plant them wherever they like, you also have certain things that draw on more water from the water table and need more resources, and then they can contribute to like a negative environment for the other flora around them. Is, Is that also like a threat?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, that's that's one of the reasons why you can't just bring seeds and plants across the borders.
1: Yeah, I sort of just thought about how with animals, it's the thing, right? You can't introduce a predator to just any environment, for example.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to introduce an invasive tree that's going to create wreck havoc in the ecology, but also especially for plants that have roots you run the risk of bringing in little pests. And so uh, we have all sorts of tree diseases here in the United States that have happened because of trees coming in from somewhere else, carrying, um, carrying a little pest or a little disease that our trees are, have not yet been exposed to. And so they're much more vulnerable to damage. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all definitely yeah. a thing.
1: <laughs> and part of when you were talking about the idea for this book you mentioned this thing which i just i just so i've come to i've come to appreciate that and i have berated myself over it otherwise in the past is the idea of filing away your uh, plans and ideas and little prompts for for the future and knowing that they're going to find expression one way or another uh, i've always wanted to be a writer there was no space by which I understood how to be a writer. So I just wrote and blogs became a thing at a certain point in my teenage years. And I started a blog and I started writing. And I had all these ambitions and I would berate myself for not being able to execute them without this, you know, you don't have a long, everything is in the now. You -hmm. don't have a sense of what the future and the sense of time and that things are going to come back to you and you are going to use this later if you didn't use it today and i love that the book also came to you out of that because you were in a very different zone at that time you would of course you were doing this the, these subjects also came to you because you were writing about uh, plants at the time you were writing i think this was uh, i read in on your website that this was around the time that you wrote flower confidential that you were you first heard about tree collectors but uh, while you were talking about this you also mentioned this having ideas and then finding the right package for them, like knowing how to express them. Mm -hmm. And that is such an important part of being a writer, being any kind of creative person, being an artist, especially today, that there are so many ways to share things and ideas and to package them in so many ways as possible. So when we have an idea that should it become a book, should it become a, a blog post, should it become a drawing, should it become just a tweet sometimes, right. or should right. it become? Yeah, this it's it's so important to be able to see that, and it feels like this is a pragmatic way to rein in one's creative impulses. Also, do do you feel that that uh, that push and pull inside yourself, like knowing wanting to do certain things, but also the reality of how to get those things done and how to have that thing be finished and appear before people, like you mentioned with writing the first novella as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. So the thing about books, and again, this is a nice difference between, I think, writing and art, because the thing about books is a book is an object of a certain length. You know, it can't be any length. It can't be, it's usually uh, 60,000 to 100,000 words. It's not 500,000 words. Maybe that's a series, but that's not one book. It also can not be 20,000 words. 20,000 words is a nice, long New Yorker article, right? (laughs) So so a book is a physical thing that is constrained by the way that it's manufactured and by the physical essence of it. And -hmm. then books are also constrained by where they go in the bookstore. And whether that's a real bookstore or an online bookstore that shall not be named, the point is (laughs) they are classified. And and you have to be able to tell an agent or a, a publisher where this book sits in the bookstore. So, for instance, I wrote a book called *The Drunken Botanist*, which is about all the plants that we turn into alcohol. And the very obvious question there is: Is it a gardening book or a cocktail book? And, and my publisher wanted it to be a gardening book because I'd written five other books about the plant world at that time. And I felt very strongly that it's a cocktail book. Um, and I kind of lost that battle. So so like publishers will actually put codes, there are these universal codes that classify books. And so they really, they even coded it as a gardening book, which bookstores take their cue from that on where to physically shelf it. And 10 years later, I was just talking to my publisher about it because we're doing a 10th anniversary edition of that book. And I said, you know, Drunken Botanist is on everyone's list of the top 10 cocktail books you must <laughs> every every cocktail nerd should own. And I said, it is on no one's list of the top 10 gardening books you should own. This this <laughs> lives very happily in the booze section of the bookstore. And they were like, wow. Right. And, I, and then I started sending them, you know, these little lists like, you know, uh, Eater or just some, some website will do these little listicle things. And so I would forward all of those like, look. Here's another list with drunken botanist botanists on it. It's a cocktail list. It's not a gardening list. And they were finally like, okay, okay. And they reclassified it. But so the point is you have to understand that that's the ecosystem that you're living in if you're writing books. And while you could write a book that's uh, never going to be published, then it's just a Word document, right? Like, what's the point of it? So you have to deal with that ecosystem. Whereas I feel as a writer, like I can do anything. I mean, as an artist, I can do anything. Like. I can draw pictures in a sketchbook. I can right. put them on Instagram or not. I could sell them if I wanted to. I could do mm-hmm. I could do, I could work really big and try to get them to hang in hotel lobbies. I like any of those things are possibilities. I could just have an idea and decide where it fits and what it is. But I think that's tougher with writing because writing involves usually a publisher and then we're just into a whole different kind of conversation at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it's it's a completely different, like it's a, it's a totally other game. Do you see this, the rules of this game, this, the, this environment changing at all? Now you've got a Substack as well. And of course, one keeps hearing about people who are doing super successfully on Substack and have enough of, uh, you know, paying subscribers that they, uh, that they don't need, quote unquote, they don't need a book deal anymore. Uh, do, do you see like this path for writers changing as the years go?
0: Well, sure. I, I think that's always been the case. I mean, I for as long as there's been, so so like the modern, what we think of as the publishing business today, the whole ecosystem, look, we got publishers, we got bookstores, we got all of that. That's only um, a little over a hundred years old, that mm-hmm. whole ecosystem. Like publishers all started out as vanity presses, right? So Maybe Dickens is the beginning of what we think of as the modern publishing era. Maybe, but not any further back than that. So, we shouldn't pretend like publishing's always been this way because it's, right. it's it's newish in the way that it works, and there's always been other stuff sort of swimming around around it, whether that's, you know, Dickens was serializing his stories prior to putting them together as novels, right? Which is I mean, Charles Dickens was the original Substack in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes.
0: Right? So, And self-publishing has always been an option. It existed before yeah. modern publishing did, and it will, con- it will always continue to be there. Uh, lecture circuit, podcasts, like, like all of these things have always been out there as alternatives. But I think that's still what they are. I think there's st- sort of like, if you're a writer, I think there's sort of like there's books and then there's all these other things that you could do if that path didn't suit you for some reason.
1: <laughs> so uh, with uh, now I want to talk about the drunken botanist and in different, different ways. But one of the questions that comes to me from what you describe, like wanting it to be a cocktail book, but it becoming a gardening book, um, do you think it would have, uh, like w- what would have been the effective difference if it was marketed or uh, labeled as a cocktail book? How would, how would that have changed Things for you.
0: Well, I'm I'm lucky to have a very good publisher for that book. Algonquin Books. Uh, they work extremely hard, and uh, and and they took all of my suggestions. So uh, in that sense, it's not a huge difference. Had they originally cast it as a cocktail book, it would have been physically placed in a different place in at least some physical bookstores, and online it might have been originally promoted and sold alongside more cocktail books than gardening books. But in terms of the media outreach, for instance, they were very receptive to everything I had to say. So I'm like, okay, here's the magazines that cocktail geeks are, are, are reading like Imbibe Magazine, which is still a beautiful full color print magazine. I'm like, there's media here and there's, you know, food and drink, um, Podcast, The Good Food Show on KCRW in Santa Monica. Like, I was able to just say these things because I'd kind of been around enough to know them. I think if I had not been as experienced an author, some of those opportunities might have been missed because I wasn't pushing them. I was like, you guys need to be digging into where you would publicize a cookbook, and we need to be going there as well as sort of the standard gardening um avenues because I really wanted the cocktail geeks to zero in on this book. That's who I wrote it for. And and at that time, they didn't. I, I don't think they quite got like who that community was. But I knew them because I went and hung out with. I made it a point to get to know them. So part part of it depends too on what the author can bring to it, and if the author can really push on these ideas and and get some receptive ears in the in the realm.
1: Yeah, yeah. What what I find uh, really fascinating about this book and the one before it. So as I understand it, the first big success sort of was Flower Confidential. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, what I find really interesting about all of them is that there is so much of your own unique creativity that you're pushing through. Like you're not an academic expert in any of these subjects. You can't even claim to have uh, like decades of experience with these subjects. You're coming into them with a place of curiosity. You're learning a lot and you're learning a lot from doing. And your books fit not perfectly inside the genre. They, <laughs> they, they, they occupy different, uh, spe- uh, d- they intersect in interesting ways across different genres. They Your books are a little confused about which shelf to be on, <laughs> which and they are allowed to be on both, which is sort of fascinating to me. So uh, what I really like about this is that you're running with the ideas you have. And so much of it is about having this confidence with something that sounds interesting, perhaps only to you and to your inner circle, and then to give it that kind of attention it needs, even when it doesn't have the validation that might help you. So speaking in uh, light of the the first big book you did, like Flower Confidential, tell me a little bit about coming across the idea for it, to really run with the idea. And then what does it mean to get started? Like, how does a person who is not in the flower industry start to learn about these things.
0: Yeah, well, this is, a, yeah, this is a great example for that. So the way the book came about is that I had just moved to a new town. So I was living in Eureka, California, which is a small town on that Northern California coast. And, uh, you know, when you just move to a new place, you're always like looking for stuff to do. Like the first year you go to all the street festivals and all the things, because you don't know. So there was an open house at a flower farm. And I thought, well, here's something we could do. And I was expecting to see, like, fields of sunflowers and poppies and a red barn in the middle and butterflies and hummingbirds and people walking around with buckets and scissors. Like, that was my image of a flower farm. And what it was was a factory. You know, it was, uh, this is, uh, you and I were just in Amsterdam together. So, you know, this was a, this is actually a Dutch guy who owns this place, Lane de Ries uh and um, it's all greenhouses and it's very high tech and it's very mechanized and very efficient and so these are not flowers like how i grew them in my garden these are flowers in a factory so i was fascinated by that i'm like this was not what i was expecting to see and so right away i'm like well how intriguing this isn't how it works in a garden this is a whole different thing so i start thinking about that and then you will well how many flower farms are there, and where are they all? Like, this is the first one I've ever been to. Where are all the rest? I didn't know at the time that I was uh, that that Sun Valley, where I was, uh, Sun Valley Flower Farms is the largest grower of cut flowers in the U.S. And uh, I didn't know that most of our flowers come from uh, South America. That only you know ten or twenty percent of the flowers we buy are grown in the U.S. anymore. So once I found all that out, I'm like, oh, this is an intriguing story because it's an everyday object, flowers in a flower shop. Nobody really knows where they come from. Nobody really knows what they're about. It's actually a global story. It's got elements of, you know, industrial agriculture. It's got elements of of the impacts of globalism. Um, It's got environmental questions. It's got questions about workers, questions about migration and and immigration. Um, It's got all that and yet it's flowers, so that's intriguing. And, and again, it also helps to know what's happening in the book market at the moment, right? So this was at a time when like Fast Food Nation had just come out, which is sort of, what is it, what's on behind the scenes with fast food? And maybe somebody had written a book about coffee that was sort of the same idea. Like, where does your coffee, what's the sort of history and global implications of the modern coffee industry? So I knew that was like a thing. So it was pretty easy for me to picture like, oh, I can do like that, only I could do it for flowers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and I'm thinking, uh, for my first thought was about the, the curiosity around the book and how it also comes from people like me who have grown up disconnected from nature. Mm-hmm. And we don't know where our flowers come from. We don't look at a tree and understand that this is a tree of this part of the world or that there is anything else to know about it. Like right. th- our relationship with nature is a very strange, uh, very, like it's it's a very strange relationship because we're still taking so much. We're just not aware of it anymore. Right. And I feel like this entire trend of learning about it is part of like, even with the coffee, like we want to know where these things have come from. And uh, uh, this uh, this sort of thing is, Like, I'm trying to see where this, like, uh, you already mentioned that this curiosity has all these implications for globalism and how the world is connected and how there is certain, like, aspects of privilege involved in this, like being able to outsource uh, certain kinds of labor. Like, I was reading about when I used to live in the Netherlands, I was very surprised to learn that so much export happens from this country, which Mm -hmm. has so little land Mm -hmm. and so little sunshine. And that they send the tulips to another country just for them to be packaged, and then they come back on another plane, packaged, and then they're sold. Mm -hmm. So uh, give me a sense of this interconnected global assembly line (laughs) behind flowers. Like, who would think?
0: Who would think? I know. Well, what really happened is that, you know, after World War II, we started having commercial flights, really, sort of for the first time, right? The modern commercial airline industry was born. And so it became possible to move things around the world quickly. Flowers are perishable. You can't put them on a boat. They'll be dead by the time they get there. Um, And so then it became possible to start looking for places around the world where uh, you could grow flowers year round or pretty close to it. And so that means the the equator. So take a globe, spin it around, look at all the countries that are kind of on the equator and you will find out where flowers are being grown. Because they can be grown there, they can get yeah. they can be loaded into the baggage hold of a plane taking off from Bogota, and they can be in Miami a few hours later. Uh-huh. and uh, and so that's kind of how that happened. And of course, yeah, labor's a lot cheaper. and there's other sort of governmental public policies and you know, perverse economic incentives that also made all that possible. but that's kind of a lot of what happened. So now the flowers that you buy at a flower store have been on a very long journey. You know, the the, the bulbs could have been bred in, in Holland or the seeds could have been developed in Germany. And uh, now they're planted in, uh, in Colombia and, and, and Ecuador primarily. And then they get packed up on a little farm there and they move by refrigerated truck and onto a plane. Like your flowers have probably been talked about and haggled over in more languages than you speak right <laughs> there's uh, those issues of currency fluctuations is a huge deal uh, when you're dealing with global agribusiness and the price right. of oil and the price of fertilizer like so many factors going into this um yeah so yeah it's a big fascinating industry also we can have the flowers we want when we want them like roses in february for valentine's day what an absurd idea that's definitely not when roses bloom
1: That's, that's, I I was just thinking exactly of that, not the roses, but just this idea that all of this happens only so that no matter which part of the world I live in, and what time of year it is, I just feel like having this particular flower. And like, I don't even like, who am I to feel like having a particular flower? (laughs) Like, you could, you could be like, no, you're not going to get a rose, you're going to have to make do with this other one. And I'd have been like, okay, sure. Sure. (laughs) like Just so I can have this multiplicity of choice and infinite options to be able to order it on Amazon Prime if I feel like it, just for that eventuality, so much extra stuff happens. Like, it's, it's, I don't know how else to describe it. It's such a strange thing to me. It's
0: true. I was so surprised to learn that carnations are like the second most popular flower in the United States. Carnations are no one's favorite flower. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, that's not true. They they have this sort of retro hipster vibe to them now. So a few people are going to write to me and say, carnations are my favorite flower. Carnations are really no, hardly anyone's favorite flower. The reason they're the second most popular flower in the U.S. is that they're easy to grow and they're long-lived and they're easy to pack and ship. So they're what's available. We buy right. them because they're there to buy. And the reason... Right we're buying them is not so much that we want them, but that it was easier for the manufacturer to make them available to us.
1: Yeah. And so. then at some element, you manufacture the desire for a certain thing. Right. So like how, like if if roses were grown in a fragile ecosystem, uh, like Valentine's Day is such a crushing blow to such an ecosystem. And I'm thinking this can happen, this already happens, I believe, with avocados and quinoa and things like this, that suddenly things that become superfoods thanks to social media sometimes and other other reasons suddenly the the places where they are grown those places come under threat because suddenly those places have grown in value and you have right. a lot of predators circling
0: yeah yeah right well you know, roses are definitely grown on, on farms and, and, they're, and they're grown in greenhouses, but it is a, it is a ridiculous amount of pressure, you know, um, especially for Valentine's Day. Uh, somebody in the industry told me, you know, if, you're, if it's February 15th, you're too late. <laughs> right, you you right. need to go buy a diamond bracelet because you blew it. So nobody yeah. wants roses on the 15th. So imagine trying to coax this plant into blooming. And it has to bloom in January sometime, you know, like it's, it's not, it doesn't bloom on February 13th and you have it in your home on the 14th. There's a, there's a whole process that has to happen and roses are permanent. I mean, that's a bush that's in the ground all year long. It's not like say sunflowers where you're going to plant a crop and after they're done, you're going to till up the fields and plant something else. So you're Mm -hmm. maintaining, you have to maintain enough rose bushes all year long to meet the insane Valentine's day demand. Yeah. So if oh, yeah. we just,
1: theoretically, if we shifted, valen- if we all agreed collectively to make September 14th Valentine's Day instead, we could completely ch- like reduce so much of the energy consumption around making roses blue on time.
0: Yes, the flower industry would love nothing better than an August flower holiday. It would make them so happy. Because we can, we can do that. We can do like, this. I don't,
1: who, 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 who is fixated on February 14th for okay. Valentine's Day? I don't think anybody has this as like it has to be this time. Like I'm, I'm completely all right with it moving to August 14th.
0: Exactly.
1: We, we should start. A, what, uh, is there a Is there a place we can start this? Can we do a petition? I don't know. Change.org. Maybe we can ask the White House about this.
0: Absolutely. Well, there is this whole slow flowers movement about buying, you know, locally grown flowers, which might be, depending on where you live, could be tulips coming out of a local greenhouse, but probably it's not long stem red roses.
1: Right. No, but uh, this reminds me that you also, you've also discovered so much of this in the process of doing the research for this book. Like Mm -hmm. just this book also grew just like a garden. You didn't know how it's going to exactly be or what it's going to be filled with. And you found out and you've learned these things over time. And I I was reading on your website about some of these interesting reactions that you've gotten and feedback that you've gotten from listeners, specifically about uh, this kind of slow farming or slow growth of uh, natural growth of flowers. And you've... Uh, tell me a little bit about this.
0: Well, I, and this is so funny too, because I didn't know this at the time. Like when I right. said about to write this book one of the first things you do when you get an idea for a book is, well, first you look to see if someone's already written the book, right? Uh, but then you look like, are there other books that are kind of about this that would help me to to write it? And, and, and so there wasn't much out there. I was definitely going to just have to go around and ask people questions. You know, I was going to have to be a proper <laughs> journalist and talk to human beings and find out what was in their brain. Uh, you could not Google this book. So... Um, So I knew that, you know, I knew that it was going to kind of take that kind of research. What I didn't know is that most people in the flower industry don't understand how the flower industry works. They know Mm -hmm. how their little piece works, but they don't know about the rest of it. No one had ever published anything that was like just a big overview that was like, here's from beginning to end, because I was going to go from the breeder to the flower shop. That was going to be the journey. And the book was going to be in that order. Uh so, so when the book came out, people within the industry were, in some cases, surprised to learn how the part of it that they weren't involved in worked. Right. They didn't right. know. <laughs> and what I also didn't realize is that this, you know, sort of, I, I didn't know that local and sustainable was going to be such a thing. The book came out in 2007, which means I was mostly writing it in like 2004, 2005. Uh, uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore Dilemma had not yet come out. People weren't really talking, or maybe it had just come out, but people weren't really talking yet about about local. um, And even some of this environmental stuff was sort of more of a fringe idea. So the other thing that really surprised me, which I didn't find out about kind of until years later sometimes, is that there were all these people who read this book, and went off and like rented a couple acres of land and became organic flower farmers, like (laughs) young people. Like I would have, some young woman would come up to me at an event and go, I read your book and I dropped out of college and I became a flower farmer. And I'm like, oh, please don't tell your mother that I am the one responsible for that.
1: Oh, wow. I
0: know. So now, yeah, now there are people, in the U.S., who are doing sort of, again, slow flowers, Is there, this is an actual movement, there's a website, there's a, everything, um, who read the book and it changed the direction of, or maybe they were already in the flower industry and they decided to become a different kind of florist. Like, I'm going to become a local, organic, sustainable type of florist instead of a FTD kind of florist.
1: Right. I didn't you... know
0: I didn't even know that was ha- like no one was calling me like I didn't even know it was happening early on so that's you, weird you pulled
1: people out of college <laughs>
0: Well, now there is a college class where they use it as a textbook. So people are staying in college and learning about the flower industry. So that's good. That's good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a positive turn. Yeah, I guess Uh, not that not that it's wrong to drop out of college. I think if I could if I could think that I made someone drop out of whatever they were studying to do something else, I think that's pretty good. I think that's a good thing. Of course, of course. Yeah, you don't you don't have to study the thing you first decided to study. No. Uh, Now, another, of course, unexpected and amazing impact of this book was that it became a New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. So what I want to ask you is, what does it mean to have a New York Times bestseller?
0: Well, you know, it's one of those things that's really important to publishers. I I can honestly say, um, before that happened, I had a friend who uh, was a was is a thriller writer. And he was very interested in getting on the New York Times bestseller list and knew all these things. Like there's these tricks you can do and there's all this stuff you can do. And I I used to just say to him, like, that's crazy. You know, like there's only 10 spots on that list. And how many books are published every week? Like this is not going to happen. You need to don't even be thinking like that. It's sort of like if you're an actor, and your whole thing is you're going to win an Oscar. like, come on, right. man. Real, just be an right. actor. It's okay. Don't be about the Oscar. Uh, so I had no interest in it. I had no f- feelings about it or anything like that. But there is a strategy, or there used to be. I think, I think a lot of things are changing right now. But it used to be that there was a real strategy to get you on the New York Times list. So your publisher would book you as many big media hits in a real short period of time the week the book comes out. So like I was on um, uh, NPR, you know, I did whatever, Morning Edition or All Things Considered, one of those. And uh, CBS Sunday Morning, which is wildly popular on the East Coast, a little less so on the West Coast, but I had filmed a whole thing with them, which had been filmed well in advance, which was going to air that weekend. The New York Times ran a big uh, profile, um, not just a book review, but a profile. And I think there were several other things. And all of this was designed to hit at once. And also, I was on the road doing crazy book tour, as many bookstores as I can, because the idea is that, uh, at least the idea used to be, you're in as many bookstores as you can, and they've ordered a bunch of copies of the book, and they have them displayed, and you've got the local media. So you're trying to manufacture a big kind of explosion all at once. So right. the, so they yeah. did that. And that's a, everyone knows what that process looks like. Every publisher knows what that looks like. And it's what they do for what they call their lead titles. They they pick, you know, they sort of pick the winners ahead of time. And those are the ones they're gonna give this much attention to.
1: Right. And yeah. So
0: as a result of that, and, and and the list is announced on a Wednesday. So on a and I didn't know that. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know this was what we were aiming for. So you know on a Wednesday afternoon I get a phone call and my publisher is telling me that it's it it hit the list. And it just barely hit the list, right? It was at like number fifteen or thirteen or something like that. It's it was a small thing, and then it drops off a week or two later because it only hit the list because of this big surge of attention that happened all at once. <laughs> um, it well,
1: you're being quite self-deprecating about it, but uh, tell me a little bit about this. Uh, so, uh, I, I am curious to know, like, uh, when once you've got the book and you, you're doing these engagements, uh, what kind of what kind of things does an author do other than making their book? So. When you've got a publisher, the book is finally going to come out and in most estimate, it seems from the moment you wrote the last word and you definitely finished writing, it's another year and a half or two years before the book is actually there for people to buy. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, a little bit maybe you can tell me about the the horror and the pain and the anxiety of this one and a half year period. How do you get through it? <laughs> yeah. And I want to know also about once it's once you have gotten through it, what next? What is what is it in the author life after that?
0: Sure. Well, so what generally happens is there's a there's a there's a moment that comes when you and your editor are finished revising the book. So you're going back and forth with the editor and they're sending you notes and you're sending revisions and they're like, Yeah, not quite. And, Once that's done, comes what they call delivery and acceptance, DNA. And DNA means that they turn the manuscript over to the production side. Generally, that may trigger a little payment for you, usually if your payments are structured and one of them comes at at delivery. Uh, And then it goes into production. So at that point, it's going to be copy edited, and you're going to get it back in a month or so, and you're going to have to go through and deal with a million little tiny commas being moved around and various questions about clarity, all that stuff. And then you send that back. And then it goes to your three rounds of proof pages where it's actually now it comes to you looking like a book that's been mm-hmm. laid out, which is terrifying because it's not a Word document <laughs> anymore. And you go, oh my God, they're going to print this thing. And suddenly it all looks wrong and terrible and awful, but it's too late. All you can do is check for errors at that point. And while that's going on, you also get what's called an author questionnaire. And this is the publicity department wanting to know everything about you and everyone you might know and any publicity ideas you have. And are you friends with a reporter or, you know, what, what can you tell us that will help us publicize this book? Mm -hmm. And so then the publicity machine starts going, but it's only a year between DNA and publication. So usually once you've delivered it, they're going to schedule your book for publication for roughly a year after that, or at least whatever season that's in, the spring or the fall season. Um, So yeah, what you're doing in that last year is you're dealing with all those things, and then uh, you're starting to see things like catalog copy, the little two or three paragraphs that the publisher's writing, which you will probably have a hand in rewriting, the text that's going to go on the jacket. Um, Maybe you're getting an author photograph taken. They're working on cover designs. And at some point they'll they'll ask you what you think for a cover and they'll start sending you stuff to talk about with cover design. And then at a certain point about six months before the book comes out, if it's if you've got a good publisher and if it's a book that they're really planning to promote, then then you start booking stuff and you start talking about what should the book tour look like and um right what kind of media can we land. So the publisher is going off, and as an example, the kinds of things that publishers do that most people have never heard of. And again, this may have changed a little over time. It probably happens over Zoom now, but at the time, um, my publicist would go to Washington, D.C. and sit down with the producers of all the public radio shows. They all come and sit in a room, and they hear pitches from book publicists, and they argue over which show is going to get you. If any. Mm-hmm. If any. If you're lucky, they're arguing over you, right? <laughs> and uh, there's definitely a hierarchy. So, of course, Morning Edition and All Things Considered and Fresh Air, that's top tier. And if you get one of those, nobody else can have you, you know? And mm-hmm. so you sort of go down and, 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 and wherever you get booked in there, that has to be the first interview um, before your book comes out. You can't do little local interviews ahead of that. So Right which is terrifying because it means the first time you go on the radio to talk about your book, you're talking to like Terry Gross or (laughs) Scott Simon or someone like that. But so those things are what they call long lead media. So they're working on pitching you uh, magazines. If you're going to be in, what's a magazine that even exists anymore? You know, if you're going to be in Entertainment Weekly, if they're going to do an interview with you, that has to be booked like six months ahead of time because most of that magazine is put to bed well before your book comes out. So they're... They're sort of booking all that. With any luck, you're starting to do those kind of interviews. Uh, In my case, I made a video. I'm I'm lucky that my brother works in Hollywood. So even before YouTube existed, again, I'm dating myself so much here, but he was like, you need a, you know, you need a little, you're going to have a little video here. You got to have something you can show people. So he made some pretty nicely done uh, videos, which my publisher didn't even quite know what to do with. Like they were like printing up CDs. They were mailing out a physical CD in a folder that had my Uh book cover on the front and had stuff in it. Um, So yeah, all that stuff starts to happen. And then the closer you get to pub date, again, if you're lucky, you're doing a bunch more interviews. Some of them are email interviews. Some of them are, you know, recorded interviews or newspaper reporters just interviewing you over the phone and writing stories. And you're also, hopefully, writing what they call, they used to call, off-the-book page uh, pieces. So, Today, I call them book-adjacent essays. It's like, you have to write this essay that doesn't exactly just say, please read my book, please read my book 500 times. It's supposed to be kind of about your book, but kind of not. So it doesn't seem like you're trying too hard and they're going to run just it. just
1: pretending that it doesn't exist. I just
0: happen to whip off this thing on a topic that's almost related to my book. Right. And, and then in the byline, it's going to say, Amy Stewart is the author of the forthcoming, blah, blah, blah. You have to write a bunch of those and those things take time. So that's that's what you're doing. And then in the month running up, um, there's probably a lot of stuff with travel arrangements and getting ready for the book tour. And it's a surprisingly busy time uh, if you have a publisher who's really putting all their muscle behind it. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how was it? How was it for you to find uh, a person who did have this faith in you? And before you, you know, before the first big success, somebody who was willing to 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 push with your vision.
0: It was wild. I mean, it was like, it was a lot to take in. And it was a, I remember that it it was a real contrast to go from being alone in a room, working on a book. No one cares. No one's applauding. No one's telling you how great it is. You're getting no little hearts on Instagram. You're getting none of that. Uh, To go from that to like dozens and dozens of emails a day with titles like New York Times interview scheduled for Wednesday or whatever, Washington Post book review scheduled and like the endorphin rush of all of that. And to have a sense that there's this whole team of people out there doing things that I didn't, I'd never even heard of. And I right. would not even have to ask. Like at one point I remember getting scheduled, they were going to fly me to Tennessee to have a lunch with the Ingram people. So Ingram is the book distributor. That's how mm-hmm. books get mm-hmm. to bookstores as they get printed at the printers and, shipped to a publisher's warehouse, and then shipped to Ingram, and then bookstores can get them from Ingram if they want to do it that way. And so they said, oh, we've got you scheduled for a lunch at Ingram. And I had to ask them, I'm like, what is the benefit of talking to Ingram? Like, they're a distributor. I don't understand why. And they said, oh, well, they have a sales force that works the phones and calls bookstores and says, here's a hot new book that you probably want to order a dozen of. And so you're going to go do a snazzy presentation, and they're going to get excited." And I'm like, they have salespeople at a district. like I, you don't know any of this stuff. So I didn't know that an Ingram lunch was even a thing to want, much less right. for me to go
1: do. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I want to get into I want to get into one of these books now because y- I happen to read that your garden, your first garden, I think it became a, a resting spot for monarch butterflies on their migrations and is is this still the case in Portland, or was this in California?
0: No, that was in Santa Cruz, so Santa Cruz, California, is on the migratory route for monarch right. butterflies uh yeah. so it's actually pretty easy to you plant you you just you know plant a few things they like and uh and they will pop into your backyard on the way
1: uh-huh yeah i I remember i i it struck out to me because uh. Like I remember seeing monarch butterflies during the migration for the first time when I was in Chicago. And that's the that's the other migration. So there's the Midwest migration and then there's the West Coast migration. Yes. And then at that time, I started reading a little bit about it. So what happened was that I was running my second half marathon Mm -hmm. uh, of my life and this was during COVID. So it was 2020 and nothing was happening. So I was running it alone by the the lake shore and like a a lonely race and uh there was no company except at mile 8 i was joined by some monarch butterflies oh. it was so like i did not know at the time that this was the time of the migration uh-huh. so i i was running down I, I remember i was running south on lake shore and i see this tree is just filled with butterflies uh-huh. And then some of them fly over to the next tree and then they, they camp over there and they're, they're going like, and it was windy. So, and I was having, uh, I, was, I was struggling to run against the wind. And then I would see this monarch butterfly and I thought this thing is going to go thousands of miles like this, like a butterfly being pushed against the wind and it's still going to complete that route. And somehow in this weird way I needed it. So I took it sort of situation. The butterflies gave me the motivation I needed to push in those last four or five miles. And it was just it was just great. Like I still think about them. And then I mentioned this story on my Substack sometime back. And I uh, someone connected with me who lives in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I used to be. And they also have a spot in their garden, which helps like they help to raise and nurture monarch butterflies. And This is such a cool thing that now i'm finding out gardeners across the country do on their own capacity it's mm-hmm. such a it's such a wonderful way to be connected with and to give back to your natural world tell me a little bit about your garden now like what are what are some of what is the state it's in what do you have there what are the other than the plants what are the animals that interact with it in different ways
0: <laughs> well i don't really have a garden anymore uh, i live in a i live in a condo now in portland so after after many years of having many different gardens, uh, what what I have now is a, is a couple pots on a balcony right there. but it's <laughs> but it is kind of funny. It's sort of weird that you say, "What are the animals that interact with it?" because um, I planted a few things that specifically for hummingbirds, so I actually do have hummingbirds coming by every day. and then um, I kind of got into birds a little bit in the last couple of years. So I have that Merlin app on my phone that can hear bird song and tell you what the birds are and I just made it into a little art project like any bird that I added to my list I would come home and draw or paint and so I have a little notebook of all these birds that I've now figured out are in my neighborhood but um so now out on this balcony that has nothing but a couple of flower pots on it I also go and set out sunflower seeds every day and I have these very aggressive tiny adorable chickadees that show up (laughs) And if I haven't put them out there, they stand out there and just yell at me. They're they're like, "I'm sorry, we were told there was a buffet. I don't see it anywhere." Right. So, yeah. um, so believe it or not, even though it's <laughs> literally only six feet of space, I um, there are animals that are out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's that's incredible. And uh, so tell me a little bit about this Merlin app. So I just downloaded the Seek app recently in order to do a similar thing with trees. Uh. It helps me it it's supposed to be usable for animals and uh, birds as well but it works with photos so i think yeah. it's very difficult for me to capture an a bird on a tree in reasonably good resolution for it to be identified uh but i but i am able to use it for trees so tell me a little bit about how how you're using the merlin app and uh is this is this a new fascination birds
0: It is. Yeah, this was kind of a COVID shutdown thing. You know, we all had a lot more time to take walks because it was sort of the only thing (laughs) we could do. So Merlin is an app that's developed by the Cornell Bird, uh, the Cornell Ornithology uh, Laboratory. So it's got good people behind it. And so it's sort of Shazam for bird songs. And um, like all of these apps that identify things, like it's it's pretty good. But I do tend to be sort of careful, like I want to make sure it's heard the bird a couple times before I go, yeah, I think that is right. I think we definitely do have a dark-eyed junco here, you know, so um, it'll tell you because it knows where you are. So it might tell you, like, I think this is a, you know, black-nosed grebe, but but that would be super weird because they definitely don't live where you are. And so, so you have a little bit of a basis for excluding things. But like when we were in Amsterdam, I was so excited to go around and add a bunch of new birds um, from Amsterdam to that list. And yeah, the photo ones, like I have one called picture this, which is also does Mm -hmm. plant, uh, plant ID. Those can be, they're almost like a drinking game. So you take a picture of a tree (laughs) and it'll tell you what it is and then just kind of walk around the corner and take a picture from another angle or zoom in closer on the leaves or the bark, and probably you're going to get four or five different trees out of that. So,
1: yeah, yeah, you that's start, true. <laughs>
0: you, you do have to be very careful with the plant ID ones because it gets a lot more wrong. Maybe it's just that I know more about plants, but I'm like, that is definitely not a cedar tree. So you're way off base here. So Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: like exactly, only exactly what you just said, like uh, being able to spot how the plant apps are wrong. There's this thing called the Gelman amnesia effect. I don't know if you've heard of it at all. It's a very random, obscure thing. I don't know why I know it. It's this thing of uh, how uh, when you're reading a newspaper and you have an area of expertise and it's a very famous newspaper, but in your area of expertise, you read an article and you're able to see how much they've gotten it wrong. Mm. But then you turn the page and then you read foreign policy and you're like, OK, yeah, this makes sense. And you read economics and you take their word for it and you read sports and you take their word for it. So this is the Gelman amnesia effect that okay. once in your area of specialty, when you have been able to see how uh, how lacking in research or how in, you know, not good something is, to uh, it, is it reasonable to extrapolate that they don't know so much about those things that you are not in a position to check up on.
0: Right, right, right. Exactly.
1: So, uh, yeah, just an aside, but uh, asides are part of this because I now want to talk about cocktails. Uh, I was reading about uh, the drunken botanist and you talked about the origin of cocktails and how they originated from very benign and almost uh, good like, good, good thoughts, like with people trying to do good for each other with putting mint into their drinks. Tell me a little bit about this.
0: Right. So what I got interested, well, let me just tell you, like the way this book came about was I was at a, um, I was actually at a conference of horticulture writers here in Portland, long before I lived in Portland. And um, a friend of mine said, oh, somebody gave me this bottle of gin and I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And I was like, well, okay, I know what we're going to do with that bottle of gin, but um, how are you not interested in gin? Because there's so many weird plants that are in this bottle. Like this is the ultimate sort of gardener's drink. And we go running off to a liquor store to get some other stuff. And I start pointing out, I'm like, well, look, there's corn, and there's agave, and there's sugar cane. And I'm walking around the liquor store doing this. And I'm talking with this friend of mine. And, and at some point I said, you know, somebody ought to write a book about this. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, why don't you do that and shut up about it? But But, you know, it really was just like a random conversation with someone. And then I'm like, oh, wait, every single thing in all of these bottles, it's nothing but plants. It's not like it's a plant plus some other random stuff. They're just plants. Like, And we should talk about, like, what is it about juniper berries? How did that end up in gin? And why is corn used to make bourbon? What about that plant? So that was the idea for the book. And no one else had, had done that thing. No one else had gone plant by plant. You know, people had gone cocktail by cocktail or spirit by spirit, but I'm like, no, like I want to, if oak trees are used to make barrels, let's look at oak trees. What's going on with the oak tree? How is that? Why is that a good thing to put uh, booze in? So, yeah, it was a lot of fun because what it meant was mostly I was talking to botanists. And so that was the thing is I thought. You know, there's all these people in the craft cocktail world. They have a big conference every year in New Orleans called Tales of the Cocktail, which I went to. Like, they all get together. They're super interested in the history and what are the ingredients and all this stuff, but none of them are botanists. And they knew nothing about the plant world. Like, I'm sitting in these seminars and I'm watching these PowerPoints they made where they just had wrong information. Like, they would would say, this plant is in the mint family and it's not in the mint family. And I'm the only one who knows that. And so I thought, well, I know how to go talk to the botanists. Like, they're now used to talking to me. This is my sixth book. And um, and I know what the cocktail geeks are curious about. So I think I can put those two things together. And so, yeah, when you look at these plants and go, how did juniper berries end up in gin? A lot of it has its roots in early medicine. Because, of course, you know, now if we get sick, we go to Walgreens and there's like pills and potions. Well, pills and, and um, whatever, liquid medicines, what you know, you to cough syrup, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it used to be that all there was was plants. I mean, if you got sick, right. if you had the misfortune to get sick in the 1700s, somebody had some dried plants they could give you <laughs> that probably weren't going to work. <laughs> That's all you had. And those plants were soaked in alcohol as a way to preserve them and to sort of, even before people understood chemistry to kind of extract the active ingredients and hold them in a somewhat stable solution of alcohol. Right. So, you know, it ends up being a little bit of a history of medicine as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So actually cocktails are a way to trace, are an important aspect of the history of medicine and medication. Yes. And uh, a cocktail is then... So a, a cocktail like that's native to a place is sort of like telling you the story of this is the alcohol that they were able to grow from the things they had. Mm-hmm. And this is the access to medicinal herbs that they potentially had. And this right. is the combination they came up with.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's very interesting. And in fact, there's a new book um, called Doctors and Distillers that digs more into the, into the specific medicinal piece of all of that. Um, but yeah, you know, this is, so going back to Greek and Roman times, for instance, they would put all sorts of herbs into wine. And part mm-hmm. of that was to change the flavor because wine tasted pretty bad back then. Like, you know, we're drinking the good stuff now. They were not, you know, it was, <laughs> so um, part of it was to stabilize it like hops were a good preservative, and so that's how they ended up in beer um but some of it was for medicine and definitely you see that with the you see that in China you see that in India you see it in Latin America um you see it all over the world you can really ancient cultures the most ancient civilizations almost all of them had this combination of plants and alcohol the one exception weirdly seems to be native americans in north america where there <laughs> th- there was never as much of an alcohol making tradition once you got out of the sort of southwestern tribes and into the northern tribes other than that almost everywhere around the world we've been doing this for as long as we can trace those origins back there's a there's even a um an an archaeologist who goes around analyzing the residue on pottery shards at archaeological digs and figures out what they were drinking like what was in there and some of the earliest drinks are this interesting mixture of it wasn't quite wine, it wasn't quite beer, and it had saffron mm-hmm. in it, and it had weird herbs in it. So it's a right. very, it is it is a very ancient thing that, that um, cocktails it is. come it out is.
1: of. Yeah, actually, this ancient history part of it, I recently learned about because I am a big fan of history, and I listen to a lot of podcasts on various ancient civilizations. And one of the oldest uh, tablets we have uh, from Mesopotamia is a recipe for beer. And <laughs> there you uh, go. It's fascinating how many kings were obsessed with it. So there's this, like through the centuries, like uh, ancient Mesopotamia is like 5,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, but you come to the 1600s and there's this story of a Mughal emperor. So at the peak of the richest empire of the world at that time, I think, um, he is approached by an English tra- uh, English explorer who tells him all about how amazing England is. But the only thing the Indian emperor cares about is how do you brew beer? Tell me yeah. about this, because we don't have that yet. <laughs> so one of his tasks is to uh, tell him, teach him how to brew beer. And that was right. the only utility this Englishman could offer to <laughs> India at that time. Uh, I was also when I lived in the Netherlands, and I got fascinated by a lot of beer around me because I was living in beer paradise, uh, I learned about Trappist beers, and so beers that are brewed in monasteries by monks. And apparently, and this is uh, trivia, so I can't validate it, I can't necessarily verify this, but the story was that during the Black Plague uh, and various other diseases, when they didn't quite know how bacteria, they didn't have a sense of bacteria and viruses, and it was about miasmas and vapors, in the air and getting so getting fresh air was important of course for all kinds of reasons it was but they didn't quite realize what they were doing they uh, water was considered to be dangerous it was the source of a lot of diseases and beer was considered safe and they didn't put uh, it together that beer was safe because it involved boiling water right. uh, but they were having lots of beer and that's when monks started to brew beer because this is safe to drink apparently and that's how trappist beers were born
0: yeah. And just a little bit of alcohol, even a low alcohol solution, will kill off a certain amount of bacteria. So even with cider, or you, you hear about like, here in the US, you hear about the founding fathers drinking gallons and gallons of, of cider every day. and it, But it was pretty low alcohol, it's like 3%. But that's still, you know, that's enough so, to
1: kill so off light, bacteria. Light beer is part of American history in a very deep way. I didn't know that. Like yeah, I just thought it was know. a recent horrible thing that they started doing in order to sell at baseball games, but it makes sense.
0: A lot of those old kind of homemade beers were very low alcohol. I mean, maybe four uh-huh. or five percent was pretty. And you still see that today. Like, for instance, there's a lot of, there's a lot of African nations where they make um, they make a, a beer out of a type of like a, a millet sort of, of grain that is just made at home. And it's quite low alcohol, and they don't you don't know it's not pasteurized, so the fermentation never stops, and it has this almost yogurty kind of quality to it. And it's something that people make at home and drink at home Great. so so those those kinds of homemade brews always tended to be pretty pretty mild stuff, really.
1: Yeah. Uh another thing you mentioned uh, while uh, talking about this book was that you were you, you were you had gotten used to speaking with botanists but now you were learning to speak with uh alcohol enthusiasts let's say. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and uh it again it 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 uh, links back to what we were talking about you not really fitting into one genre like you're not only uh, do your books occupy multiple spaces in multiple bookshelves. But uh, also the people you're speaking to abroad, you're speaking to people who are uh, geeks for different niche <laughs> subjects and still congregating around your book, which is a fantastic situation to be in by accident or by design. Congratulations. This is amazing. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I-, I was reading this quote on your Substack, which when you just recently started your Substack and you said you spoke about your natural disinclination to pick a lane <laughs> and <laughs> I I love that line. I've written it in block letters on my page because I wanted to remember this line. It's such a good line. I I fully endorse this idea. Uh tell me a little bit about this with respect to, you know, just giving yourself this permission to write on these subjects that you do not uh you cannot point to these traditional credentials you know institutional uh, credentials which give you the quote unquote right to talk about them did you ever face this kind of self doubt did you have to answer these questions to yourself or anybody else at all
0: yeah for sure because the publishing world and the i think the art world is very much like this too they want to put you in a category for a good reason and and the same if you were a musician you know and you had a record label they'd also want to keep you in a keep you in a lane because they know how to sell that you know, just keep doing this over and over again, and we can, we can build something out of that. Um, my problem with that is that I just get bored too easily. Like, I, I, I look at people who've managed to build a life for themselves out of a particular topic, and they're like, I'm that guy. I'm the one who does this thing. And I always think, really? Like, 10 or 20 years later, you're still, are you really still into it? So yeah, I've never, I I just haven't ever been able to to do that. And it has been kind of an issue. So like I remember there was a day when the publicist at my publishing house called me up and said, we just had a big meeting about you. And the head of the company was there and um, we really want to try to break you out. And we think you need your own TV show and we want to go, we want to pitch a show. And immediately my guard was up because immediately I did not want to do that. Um, and, and he said, we want to pitch it. You know, we think you need like a show on HGTV. And so the, the first, you know, immediately I started trashing this idea. And the first thing was, you know, there's no G in HGTV, right? They don't really have guard. Have you watched this channel? It's all home renovation. There's no gardening happening on this more channel.
1: sledgehammers than right, right. gardens, and
0: there's a reason we started out this conversation talking about how gardens are slow, like they don't lend themselves to TV. So um, I'm like, well, there is no G and HGTV, and I said I I don't write about gardening, and there's this long pause on the other end of the line. He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I've never written a book about how to garden, like. You know, I wrote a book about earthworms. I wrote a book about the global flower industry. I wrote a book about poisonous plants. Um, these are not things that you do in a garden. Like, I'm not the, like, let me show you how to grow tomatoes lady. What I do is I go around and I interview people. And really, these are all books about people. Like, I didn't really write a book about earthworms. I wrote a book about earthworm scientists. You know, and right. I didn't really write a book about cut flowers. I wrote a book about people who work in the global flower trade. Right. Uh, So for all of these books, I go around and I talk to interesting people who are doing surprising and unusual things, and I make them into characters. And they live as characters in in, in the book that hopefully readers can sort of get attached to and understand. But what's intriguing to me, really, is going around and talking to people about the cool uh, things that they do. And so that has been sort of a little bit of a struggle. Like I'll sort of say, like, I'm actually not really a garden writer. Like I can't, I can't help you with your problems with your lavender plants, probably. Right,
1: right. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting distinction. Like yeah. your book is not about how to grow a garden, but everybody who grows a garden would want it.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's more interesting, you know? I mean, which is not at all a knock on like a reference book or something, because you need those. Um, but it's, I, I, I'm much more interested in the entertainment side of reading a book, right? Like I want people to read a book because it's, I read books for entertainment. I think we're, if we're writers, I think we're entertainers. And, uh, and so I see myself as an entertainer first, which means that I'm not here to pass along a package of facts to you that you're going to then walk away with and implement. Like, I don't care about that at all. So, yeah, it's just, and so, but that is, it is a little bit of a kind of an uneasy thing, but I would also say it's really helped. Like you can, even with this tree collectors book, you know, there were people who said to me like, well, it can't just be about tree collectors. Maybe it could also include some sort of fun facts about trees and some growing tips. And I was like, no, 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 no. We need to dig into the nerdiness and weirdness of people who collect, and this happened with Wicked Plants as well, which is a book about kind of poisonous plants. And my publisher, at one point we had this meeting and, and they said, you know, it's not just wicked plants, it's plants that are they're weird or interesting or unusual. And I'm like, nope, these are plants that can kill you. Like we need to embrace that. I need everyone on board with, this is a book of plants that will kill you. Like we need to go, we need to go there. If you guys aren't ready to go there, if we water it down, no one's booking me on NPR for some watered down book about plants that are in some way. What, why are they weird? Like they have purple leaves. Like that's weird. Like no, no. I have collected stories of specific people who died, or nearly died, because of their encounter with this plant, or an attempted murder, or a war got started, or a whatever. Like I've collected stories about specific people who had specific, very bad encounters with truly terrible plants. Let's own it. So sometimes publishers really, in a weird way, want to sort of back off, water it down, try to broaden the appeal. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, people will be interested. And this is actually very true with art, too. People will be interested in your weird, specific thing. Like, don't try to be all things to all people. Uh, there's a wonderful artist named Nicholas Wilton, who's sort of a guru, particularly among abstract artists, and he talks about this like really get in touch with your preferences. I like this, I don't like that, I want this. And the and and weirdly, the more specific you get, the more appealing it is to people because they can connect to your right. weirdness about it. Yeah. And then yeah. they and then they want to know more about it. If you try to just be all things to all people, we're we're bored. So yeah, absolutely.
1: That's... And this this is so profound, you know, like uh, because uh, like the pull from the side of industry and traditional publishing seems to be that can we cover more bases, <laughs> but that's coming at the cost of becoming more shallow. So we mm-hmm. have this much, quant, this is the volume we have. Do you want to spread it over a large area or do you want to go deep with it? That's right. And there is there is this choice and there is this conflict that you are facing on that end. So it shows a lot of what what shines through is this. Clarity of purpose from your end of you knowing what you want that book to be, you almost also in, I I guess this becomes stronger over time with experience, also having a sense of your audience and what they, what kind of people they might be. The idea that you're connecting with people who are geeks about a certain subject and they want you to go into it. They want you to go into this thing that is not broad, that is deep. Right. And uh, like, uh, so tell me a little bit about this like was this uh, this friction that we speak about about going in a certain other direction and making it about weird plants these are external questions that you are fending off mm-hmm. to defend your vision but within yourself as a writer do you ha- did you feel also this uh, this idea of this uh, this confusion about what is your purpose what is the space you're filling and what is it that you can be- get away with doing
0: <laughs> well i think For me, when I first get the idea for a book, um, that's kind of one of the early questions. Like, is it just this? Is it this plus some other things? And sometimes it's this plus some other things, right? Like, so I go to uh, visit a flower farm and I see what that flower farm's like, but I'm like, is it just this? Or is there more to the story? Like how, what is it exactly? Um, But I think very often the thing that appeals to you initially, like the initial weirdness about it is what you got to really hold fast to and really stick with. Even with a drunken botanist, like the premise is so simple. It's all the plants we turn into alcohol. And then my editor is asking me like, well, can you include some non-alcoholic uh, cocktail recipes in it? Because like I'm pregnant and I like going and ordering a pregatini at a restaurant or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, this is a book about all the plants we turn into alcohol there will not be a recipe for how you can take some pineapples and strawberries and mash them up with club soda and have a non-alcoholic beverage. This is a book about booze. So, you know, like, I became like the staunch defender of like, this is what makes it cool. Like, it's not just a book about all the, having a glass with a bunch of flowers sticking out of the top of it that you're going to order in a restaurant. That's not what this is. Um, So, yeah, I definitely had to, And you learn that, like at first, when my first book came out, I just thought the people I was dealing with on the other end of the phone were so sophisticated, and that they knew everything. And here they are, off in this office in New York, and uh, I don't know anything about what's going on over there. And they and I later found out we were all twenty six years old. They were too. I didn't know that. I didn't know that my fancy editor in New York that this was her very first book, and that she was an editorial assistant, and she was. They were trying to decide whether she could make it as an editor. And then my publicist, who seemed to know everything, was like my age and just a guy figuring it out. Like, I didn't know. I thought they were such geniuses. And it took a long time for me to understand that, well, I have expertise to bring to this, too. And I have a point of view. And, um, and, and they don't necessarily know. They, they, they know more about certain things, but that there's still an argument that I can make respectfully.
1: Right. And to... and that there is a that there is a value of your like your idea and your conviction for that idea is the reason for the book. So yeah. even if you're like so it sort of ties into what you said before about the weirdness, like this manifests in art also in so many ways, you know, you, you have people you look up to and then you try to draw like them. And I meet a lot of people who uh, when they ask about my art, the questions often are what sketchbook I use or what what uh, uh, pen I use. And then what nib size do I use and (laughs) how fast do I draw? And uh, these are I feel like these are such unnecessary questions and I try to fend them off as politely as I can. But I really inside me, I feel like this is the most unlike if you actually wanted an answer from me about something. And if you had one time to ask me, this is possibly the least useful question you could have asked. <laughs> right. But but people hold on to this because they feel that they need to be like somebody else. So often in art also, you know, we, we, we berate ourselves because we think we need to be uh, like this thing that we have established in our mind. We've given it a pedestal. This is the ideal. This is perfection. And I have to get there. And the path to getting to perfection is this horrible, uh, masochistic path in which you kill all the weirdness inside you. You try to eliminate all these things that you think of as mistakes. And I'm Mm -hmm. holding up air quotes to say this because they are not mistakes. They're actually your personality, like things you're not able to draw, things you don't like to draw, things you are irritated by. These are the things to tap into rather than the things to rather than things to tune out or to, to push out of ourselves. That's and right. Sort of this this process of writing and the way that you're going about making a case for your vision, it shows me this inclination in you, this idea that this is the thing I want to do and this larger understanding that everyone around me is also sort of winging it. It's mm-hmm. not that there are these gospel truths that somebody else has access to that I don't know. Right. The path to success uh, you know, the idea that you need to be confident about this path that is there and then you need to follow it and then you will be successful. And to flip it around just a little bit, any path you walk with confidence, you will eventually find success in. And confidence is not something that comes after the fact of knowing that something is going to work, but it is key to making sure that it does indeed work in some way later and not necessarily knowing how it's going to work.
0: Yeah, not necessarily knowing how it's going to work. Um, I don't know. I, this stuff is so tricky, especially any time we talk about success, you know, if you mean something like success in the publishing world, like I'm, I'm so aware of, of how much of it is luck or being in the right place at the right time or even being the right kind of person. I mean, you know, honestly, most of the time when I'm in meetings with my publisher, it's me and a bunch of other white women. We're, we're we're carbon copies of each other right we read the same books we have the same cultural references <laughs> We're we're all on the same gluten-free diet or I'm, <laughs> I'm exaggerating but you know do you know what i mean like so there's unfortunately there's sort of questions of are, are are you the right cultural fit are you the right whatever that the world is looking for that you don't get to so much control right um and there's all these ways that I've been the wrong person too. Like I, mm-hmm. it was years before I realized that a lot of people who refused to talk to me for flower confidential might have responded differently to an email from a man. It never occurred to me to try that. I wish I had. Right. And I know that happened with Drunken Botanist, which is the cocktail world, unfortunately, is a real bro culture. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I now I now can look back and see like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. These people were never going to talk to me. So, you know, so sometimes I and, and, and I think even understanding like it's one thing for me to say I'm going to hold true to my vision, but my vision isn't crazy or my vision isn't so outside of the publishing world. Like if I had gone to my publisher and said, I want to write Drunken Botanist, but it's going to be a play and you're going to publish the script <laughs> of the play. Right. Right. I'm sorry. That's not, no, you can be as loyal to that vision as you want. It is never going to happen. So, right. So, I, there may be some of this like, believe in yourself and put it out there, and other people will believe too. There is that, but there's also all this other stuff, right? There is an industry that you have to navigate that has its own deal going hmm. on. And so, I don't know. It's, it's a little of both.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I agree. Like, there is this. Like, it's it's part of being a writer, for sure. It's definitely part of being an artist that you have to uh, know what people around you like. And subconsciously, those things do influence you because you are influenced by the things that are successful around you, the things that you've been taught and somehow imbibed are aspirational. So inevitably, those things also seep into you. But you also have to be very, very, uh, you have to hold on to what you think. And you have to hold on to even the things that you wonder, why do I think this way? Like, maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe I don't need to have these strong feelings against a certain art form. Right. But I feel like, no, you need to hold on to that. Like, even if you have an irrational prejudice against cubism or anybody playing with perspective in playful ways, like you have this irrational attachment towards realism. And I don't. But if somebody else does that they should hold on to it. You should hold on to all of your idiosyncrasies because those are the only things that will help you create, like, so the thing I say in my workshops is that you need to make your own lines. Like, if I draw a straight line and you draw a straight line, they should look different. Mm -hmm. Your line should be your line. But we have this plague of uh not knowing like you uh, we started uh, uh, like you just started uh, saying this with saying that you have to have a meaning of success in your life and what success as an author might mean like what uh, might uh translate to but there is also this internal notion of what is success and that also needs to be clear in some sense to us or it needs to be articulated within us to ourselves because otherwise you're always chasing and if you're always chasing again you tend to let go of this vision that you have so yeah. uh th- that's sort of what i want to ask with all these books and the, all these different kinds of books did you have a sense of what did uh, uh, did you have a sense of what success might mean to you and did that sense of success change with every book and uh, the market for that book or your idea for how it came about
0: i yeah i mean i i've never had any kind of grandiose vision of what this could possibly become so when I wrote my first book I assumed first of all it never occurred to me that I would get to write a second one um (laughs) I never thought I'd quit my day job I I mean I very clearly was like that that's not something you do you don't support yourself writing books no one does and uh so yeah with each book like some little surprising good thing would happen but I would always be like well it's not going to happen again or you know (laughs) <laughs> Just because that thing happened doesn't mean that the next thing that happens is whatever's the next thing up the tier. And I didn't know what the rungs of the tier even consisted of. Like I didn't even know what was out there necessarily to want. But I've always been like that. And even with this book, I'm this tree collector's book that I'm doing now. So this was my first time to do an illustrated book, which was a huge thing. I had to spend months figuring out, can I really do this art? Do I even know how? Like, what would that even look like? I had to buy a scanner and figure out how that, you know, I hadn't done anything like that. And do I even want to, or is it going to start to feel like work? And I don't want art to feel like work because it's supposed to be the thing that has no expectations (laughs) attached to it. So I had all these, you know, things to consider. And when we took it out, when the book proposal finally went out, You know, I had very modest expectations. In fact, I remember I went out right after Labor Day, and I didn't know exactly when my agent was going to send it, but I knew she said, you know, publishing industry goes on vacation in August, we'll send it right after Labor Day. So I'm out taking a walk a day or two after Labor Day. And and I'm thinking on my walk, I'm thinking, what's my backup plan? Because nobody's going to want this book. So given that, (laughs) uh, can the book become something else? Like, could I do this? Should I try to make this book into like a newsletter or a podcast or or an art project or a something? Or should I set this aside and pitch another book? And if so, what is really my runner-up idea? Because I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about that. My whole walk, I'm thinking, I need a backup plan because this is definitely going nowhere. Like, she's going (laughs) to send this out and it's going to be crickets. And I get back from the walk, and there's an email from my agent, and the subject line is something like, your book is blowing up, you know? And she's like, (laughs) oh, my God, you have no idea. My phone's ringing off the hook. Everybody wants this thing. And I legit, genuinely did not expect. I was like, this is too weird, and no one's going to be into it. So, (laughs) yeah. So I've always had this ridiculously low expectations, and um, I never – like I started making a living as a writer after Flower Confidential came out. And the only way I did that, I always had a day job. And I thought, well, I'm gonna I never spent the money I earned from writing. Because I thought, I have a job that supposedly pays my bills. Why should I take this hundred dollars I got or this thousand dollars I got? Why should I just blow this on stuff? Cause I have a job. So I made a separate bank account at a different bank. So I it's sort of hard to even get to it. And right. I put all the money there. And I told myself that when I had enough money to live for a year, like a year's worth of sort of my half of the bills, I mean, I'm married, so hopefully he can come up with his half. I'll come up with my half. I'll quit my job when I got a year's worth because that way I'm never worrying about next month's rent. I'm worrying about 12 months from now's rent. So that happened about the time that Flower Confidential came out. So it was my third book. But... um. I don't think I would have ever said before that I'm going to make a living full time as a writer. And even after right. that happened, I always sort of thought, well, maybe I've bought myself a year and then I'm going to need to go get another job. Like I was <laughs> always looking uh this. This was still when there were one ads in a physical newspaper. So I'm always sort of looking, going, that's a job I can do. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I still joke about that. I mean, now I'm virtually unemployable. Like I can't wake up to an alarm clock. I can't be expected to be anywhere on time. I'm not going to do what people tell me to do. It's too. It's, I'm too, way too far gone. But we still joke about it. Like the other day, I very successfully got a, a wasp out of our house without hurting the wasp, with the jar and the little card. And I ushered it out. And I'm like, this could be a job for me. Like, I think people would hire me for this just here in my neighborhood in Portland
1: to de their homes
0: you would te- if you had a bug would, would
1: you branch out to other insects
0: oh sure a spider i love spiders i'd be happy to come get a spider out of your place yeah you'd text me and i would just i'd i'd only go within a certain radius that i could like walk or bicycle to, and i'd i'd get a bug out of your house but <laughs> so, yeah. so we always sort of joke about like this is my fallback career because i've run out of like real career options i yeah, could do anymore yeah.
1: yeah yeah you can you can uh re-own, reclaim the word debugging That's and make it again about getting bugs out of things. That's very
0: good, debugging. I like that.
1: That's that's how, how, uh, I don't know if you know, but this is just, again, useless trivia I know because I used to code Mm -hmm. a lot, is that this is how the word debugging came into being. Like uh, back when computers were these big machines spanning multiple rooms with cables and vacuum tubes going from one to the other. There was an actual bug that got into one of the machines. Oh, sure. And so it needed to be debugged yeah. in order to work again. And that's right. how the idea of finding bugs in a machine, machine and then code yeah. came into being. So then now we have the word debugging. Nice. Um, we started this conversation talking about how, you know, you didn't have an, an idea of what paths you might want to go down when you were young, how to be a writer can somebody be a writer, what does it look like education-wise, etc. But even this process now of being successful, uh, again, (laughs) let's use it in quotes, being successful, this process also seems to involve as a necessary part of the recipe that you not know too much. It seems almost useful if you don't know exactly how things are going to go down, if you don't know how big the stakes are, if you don't know uh, what are the complications? And in some cases, not knowing what you don't know, like uh, being able to approach a really complicated subject without having uh, domain expertise in it also uh, needs a certain happy-go-lucky naivete. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know that I shouldn't be able to do this. Like what? I'm just doing it because I think, why can't I do it? Right. Like it's, it's Dunning-Kruger effect to to the, to the public benefit. Uh, it like the importance, like what comes back to me again and again is the importance of not getting in your own way with too much knowledge or foreknowledge. Do you think that's important?
0: I do think that's important. Um, you know, well, I'll, I'll say this. We we were talking in the very beginning about how your hobbies need a, a hobby and, um, This is again, I think an interesting contrast between writing and and art, visual art, like drawing and painting is that um, with visual art, it's very teachable. I can can teach someone about negative space. I could teach them about line. I could teach them color uh, theory. You can sort of walk someone through eight or 10 um, basic lessons and they composition, value, and they would sort of understand enough to kind of get going people sometimes see me sketching and they walk up and they say, oh, I wish I had your talent. And I'm like, no such thing as talent. I took classes. I can show you pictures that I drew before I'd ever taken a class and no one would say there was talent there. Like this, this (laughs) is learned. I learned it. You can learn it. Anyone can learn it. Writing is much harder that way. So in terms of a path, I think it's, it's actually pretty easy for if someone wanted to get into art If they spent a little time poking around, they could figure out like, well, here's a path, here's sort of what I could do. And by the end of doing this, I would actually be sort of competent in drawing or or painting. Writing is weirdly harder than that. Um, It's harder to sort of figure out what the path is. The publishing world is very opaque. It's a a black box. It's hard to understand what's going on inside there. and so, one of the things I love about art is that it is much more knowable. It is much more teachable. It's much more learnable. It's easier to get my head around. And and writing is very confounding for how. Uh, so so I just think even if I was someone who needed to understand the path before I got on it, with writing that is so tough. And yeah. and in fact, I'll tell you when um, right before. Uh, right before COVID started, actually, I had been thinking about teaching writing because, you know, I get asked questions, right? People, just like you said, people ask you what kind of pen do you use, right? Well, (laughs) literally people ask me, do you type your books on the computer or do you write them out by hand? So they do ask me what kind of pen I use too, basically, but also other questions like I have an idea for a book. I just don't know how to get started or how do you do your research or You know, they're sort of, and I can expect those questions. At the end of every bookstore event, there'll be a line of people and they'll have kind of the same questions. And the thing is, I have answers to those questions. And they're not like the standard uh, answer that you could Google and find. They're weird things that I've kind of figured out for myself and worked out how to do. So I had this idea that I should do a series of classes online, because I don't know mm-hmm. that much about writing. I don't want to have to actually be in a room with people for three months, and because I'll run out of material, right? But I, <laughs> I was like, everything I know about writing, I could package into, you know, a small number of classes. So I got interested in teaching online for that reason. I thought, I'm just going to tell people, you want to know how to revise your book? I actually have some little things I do. It'll take me all of 20 minutes to tell you what they are and good luck with you. You can go do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not much. Like that is not much information, right? Like for 20 years of being a writer and someone who makes a living as a writer, I have surprisingly (laughs) little that I can pass on is my point. Right, because cause like, then I got into teaching art online which I only did because I happened to go to Mexico on vacation right before COVID and I filmed a little bit of my and then I was like oh maybe I should do this and those classes are like wildly more popular and I think the reason is that like art is more teachable yeah. you can start at the beginning of an art class and learn something and at the end of the art class you then know how to do it and you can go off yeah. and do it again on your own whereas a writing class I'm sort of like I can show you a few things that have worked, but also sometimes they don't work, but take them and good luck. And you're nowhere. You're you're really in no different place at the end of that class than you were at the beginning, except you've got maybe a few ideas of things you could try.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And so true. Like uh, I wanted to, I wanted to segue towards this balance of writing versus uh, urban sketching and having a third spot for painting. So making art Separated from making uh, art on location, separated from the act of writing, because I want to. I want to now talk about just this act of doing many things, and how does one? Because this is a mystery. I'm sure to most of the people who see your work and who have been longtime readers of your work, people like me who discover you first on Instagram as an artist and then see. Wait, this is insane. This is the same person who is also doing these other incredible things. So, um. You speak about modest expectations, not having these big notions of success, uh, not using those to fuel your path. But now I'm thinking about the path, I'm thinking about the fuel, and I'm thinking about how one paces themselves through these things. So uh, this is linked to a a question that Jim Richards wanted me to ask you. He wanted me (laughs) to ask you about just how do you do so many different things and how do you manage And how do you plan? And do you have a plan of say, if not a day to day plan, but a week to week plan? Or is it a month to month plan? And this is something I'm curious about also, because since becoming a freelancer, I have realized, there is no good way to measure what is a good day's work. Because sometimes a good day only manifests as a good day after the week is over. That yes, that day was really good because it led to like you don't you don't know how to measure progress. You don't know how to know if you are thirty percent through or if you just need to power through with the last ten percent or maybe you have a complete rewrite on the other side of it and you won't see it coming. So uh, tell me a little bit about how how you manage expectations. How do you plan? How do you how do you work around this this really? Baffling, difficult word called productivity.
0: Yeah, well, and I, my attitude towards this has changed recently. So um, I, I do have a very specific answer to that. But I'll, I'll first say, um, people ask me that a lot, and 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 one thing I always remind people is that I don't have kids. Um, if you are, if you are responsible for caring for other people, whether they're your children or even a spouse or parents, or if you are a caregiver of any kind. Then that fills a certain amount of your day. I literally have no one who needs anything from me. I have a husband who's very self sufficient. Um, <laughs> if he walks in the door and I am not, and I am not coming downstairs, I just hear the sounds of dinner being made. There's no conversation. You know what I mean? So i I have never had the responsibility of having to care for anyone but me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't had a job in a very long time. A lot of writers are also teaching and co- college or they're doing something and part of the reason that's worked for me like I we talked about I saved up some some money it took seven years for me to save one year's living expenses but I did it but also we we just live quite modestly you know we mostly lived in a small town in the middle of nowhere because it's so cheap to live there and even though we're in Portland now we've got a pretty like I told you I don't have a garden like that's because mm-hmm. we we didn't want to spend the money we live in a little tiny place that was affordable for us mm-hmm. so those are things that are like choices but also not choices that everybody gets to make right so so there's that so what that means is that i have nothing to do all day every day but just amuse myself (laughs) in a way right to make my stuff i i'm not a particularly good housekeeper the house is a bit of a mess like this is all i have going on so when you think of how many hours there are in the day and no one expects anything of you except maybe a quick trip to the grocery store you're going to move the laundry from the washer to the dryer That's not how most people's lives look. So nobody should beat themselves up over what they are or are not getting done in light of their other responsibilities. That's a big thing. Having said that, um, so I like doing a lot of different things because I need a break. And so what I learned as a full-time writer was that you do not sit and work on your book for eight hours a day. I mean, I had been working in an office where you show up at eight and you're there till five and you get an hour lunch. And I thought that's what a workday looked like. And it took me a long time to realize that you can really only do productive, creative work for three or four hours at the most. Now we all have figured this out. But at the time when I figured it out, it was still sort of an epiphany. And so what that meant is that I just said, well, I'm going to quit pretending. I'm going to quit trying to work. Um, I'm going to structure my day in such a way that my best hours are saved for writing the book. But the rest of the time, I'm not going to sit at the desk and, and... feel bad that I'm not getting enough done. I'm gonna go right. do other things. I'm gonna I'm gonna go take a walk, I'm gonna work in the garden, I'm gonna draw pictures, I'm gonna paint paintings. I'm mm-hmm. gonna do different things. <laughs> and writing is also just so mentally exhausting for me. I mean, at the end of the day, if I've been if I've working on a book and, and I've been writing, I'm extremely boring after that. Like, uh, like you know, <laughs> my poor husband comes home. I got nothing to say, nothing. I cannot get another word out. I am depleted and dead and empty. And so, like, art is so great because it's nonverbal. So it's a thing that yeah. I can do that doesn't tap into the same. And I'm used. I'm working with my hands. Like in every way, it's it's different. So right. what seems like productivity is in some ways just a way of being like. I have to do something, I'm not gonna sit around and watch TV for the rest of the day. Um, what can I do that's very different? If I was into sports, I'd probably be off playing tennis or wh- whatever, but this just happens to be what I'm into. Um, but the, the other thing that you mentioned about productivity, and this is the thing that I've just learned recently, is what I used to do, well, I, I still make myself a schedule. So when I sign a deal for a new book, I lay out how long it's going to take me to do it and what I have to do every day for the next year or however long it is in order to get it done. And I decided a long time ago that it worked better for me to do all the research first before I ever start writing. I didn't do it that way at first because no one told me how, how anything works. And I met somebody one time who told me that, like, there's two kinds of writers. There's the kind who just jump in and start writing and they make a big mess and they figure it out as they go and they revise and revise and revise and revise. And then there's the people who, like, figure it all out first. So by the time they sit down and start writing, they have a roadmap. And I'm like, ah, I like that second thing. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and he said, oh, you can't change or either one or the other. And I'm like, watch me. That sounds mm-hmm. way better. No one told me about that one. Now I know. So I map out, like with the tree collector's book, I signed the deal in September and um, I mapped out that I was going to spend the rest of the year, the calendar year, uh, interviewing people. So first task is to make a list of likely suspects and then start scheduling interviews. If you look at my calendar from a year ago, you'll see that I had a Zoom or two every day talking to possible candidates that I could interview for the book. And at some point, once I had enough, I'd start writing. And the schedule that I worked out for myself, that, again, is just the kind of what I know I can accomplish, is that I could do two of them a week. So there are like 800 words, roughly, these profiles of, from the interviews. So uh, on Monday, I would do one 800-word piece. On Tuesday, I would do the second one. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I would do the art. I'm working from photographs that they sent me, so like i you can imagine how this goes, right? I've got a big Google spreadsheet of right. have i have I received the photos yet? you know all those columns, and once I've got enough, um, I'm doing that, and that it would take me x number of weeks to finish at that rate, and then I build in some extra weeks for getting sick or going on vacation, or it goes badly one week, and I don't finish, and so I need two weeks to get that chunk done. I build in a nice, comfortable cushion for myself, and then I get going. But what I realized this year in doing this is that the way I used to do it um, is that I used to say that I would write a 1,000 words a day. Mm-hmm. And when I'm writing, like there's the research part, which is just research, but then when I'm writing, of course, I give myself a quote of like a 1,000 words a day. I used to work seven days a week. I used to never take a day off. My husband was also working seven days a week, so it didn't seem weird. That's all we did. And that the way I would know that I had a good day, that I could tell myself at the end of the day, like, you were productive today, you're a good person, (laughs) is that I did that work. And I realize now how cruel that was. That's a very cruel thing. I would never say that to someone else. I would never say, the only way you can feel good about yourself at 7 o'clock is if you did this quota of work today. Otherwise, you're a loser, right? Yeah. But at some level, I used to tell myself that, and so right. getting the work done was a way of not having to feel like a loser by dinner time. Like that's right. awful. That is truly yeah. awful.
1: Yeah, uh, like allowing yourself to feel good about yourself right. and withholding, <laughs> withholding joy yes. like that. Like uh, you're almost, you're almost blackmailing yourself. And yes. one thousand words a day is actually no different from eight hours a day. Because in the end, what we're doing is, and I've thought about this a lot too, because I came from an engineering and a science-based life. So a very quantitative, numbers-driven world (laughs) to a world which suddenly had no place for numbers. So the only numbers I had to hold on to were things like eight hours a day, seven days a week, or 1,000 words or 2,000 words a day. And these numbers, they let us this is how science works also numbers let us abstract a lot of things and yeah. then we can play in this language of numbers and come up with more numbers and then we recontextualize them to the situation so you run numbers through an equation they come out and then you think about what that number means again putting it back into context in the world that you were that you were thinking about or reading about yeah. uh, so uh this doesn't apply to creativity this right. you can't you can't think of 8 hours 8 hours doesn't mean anything 8 hours is not a guarantee and i spent so much time also so you you said that you know uh, this was back then so i didn't have the opportunity to think that i could be more forgiving but you know, this is a this is something that hasn't gone away because I faced it for sure. Like I felt for the longest time that if I don't do one thousand words, I'm not allowed to feel good for good about yes. myself. And don't don't I want to feel good about myself? Right. What this does is it underestimates our ability to spend a lot of time living in self uh, <laughs> hatred and shame. Yes. <laughs> no. The human the human body doesn't really want that much of self pride. It can get away with a lot of lot of self-loathing. Like you can spend years in that cycle. So uh, once you realize that this is what you're doing and you're just going to spend your whole life being, uh, whole life hating yourself, it's not (laughs) that this is going to somehow lead to work happening because you don't want to hate yourself anymore. Uh, Then you understand and you have to come up with these new metrics. And these new metrics, again, you need something. You need something to tell you, hey, good job or something that indicates, hey, you're allowed to feel nice but the toughest task is to sort of and en- disentangle it from activity or like is uh i'm, I'm asking I'm, I'm going on this very long uh detour because i was reading about productivity and there's this very famous podcaster and writer and i think he's an academic called cal newport and uh he talks, he's written a several, he's written several books about productivity also, and he talks about this thing of slow productivity. Mm-hmm. So not measuring yourself in terms of hours in a day, or even having a weekly target, but for the really big things in life, don't have, don't, uh, don't uh, quantify them, don't break them into little chunks. For mm. the really big things, leave them abstract, leave them vague, mm. and have an idea of, if I want to be an author, so a really big thing being I want to be a, a writer that people read, have a five-year timeline without mm-hmm. a strict idea of how you're going to get there. But if you spend more time in a five-year timeline uh, mindset, then you leave more space for play, to take days off, to take week off or weeks off on vacation. There is room to allow yourself to do this. And room to maybe, I think, hopefully develop a positive way to engage with your passions and your work and not involve all this blackmail and right. self-loathing in it.
0: Right. Yeah, I know. There is this element of cruelty to it. And I used to joke, you know, the thing about being self-employed is, you know, you are your own boss. And I'm like, I hate my boss.
1: Yeah, same thing. Like, I'm a terrible boss. I'm a horrible employee. Like, it's just both ends of this is really messed up, and I don't know how things are, how this company is supposed to function. (laughs)
0: Totally right. I have this awful boss now who never gives me a day off. I hate her. I don't want to work for her. So yeah, I, I I don't know. I think my answer would be somewhere in the middle there. My answer would be like for me because I sign a contract with a publisher and they have expectations. Um. I have to be confident that I can hit that deadline. And so that means I have to chunk it out and ask myself, but what I do now is just I allow for things to go wrong in a way that I don't think I used to. So now it's a five day work week. It's not a seven day work week anymore. <laughs> and it's a work week that has enough um, or it's a schedule that has enough lost weeks in there so that so that if by Friday, Especially the drawing part of it. You know, the writing part is now um, easier for me, but especially the I'm drawing people's portraits and I'm drawing pictures of trees. And if it doesn't go well, it doesn't go well. I'm going to have to redo it. So uh, now for me to just tell myself, like, well, this is part of the process. And you may have to do two or three versions of this drawing. And that's why we have extra weeks built in for you. So, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when you were talking about writing a book and now having come to appreciate this, planned way to write a book that having a time to do all your research for example uh is this also like uh I found it interesting because there's this uh, comparison I often bring up on my podcast and it's especially relevant now because you're actually a gardener in that uh the gardening and the architect's approach to writing a book right. and this was articulated for me at least I read a quote by George R.r R. martin who wrote the a song of ice and fire, the incomplete fantasy series that has driven everybody nuts. <laughs> yes. uh, so maybe not the best guy about getting things done, done. Right. But uh, regardless, he spoke about uh, he's a gardener who was messed up. I think that would be the conclusion of his of his at least this this series uh, with his his work with this series. So his idea was that an architect, uh, an architect's approach is similar to what uh, Tolkien did with Lord of the Rings. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He planned everything. He had a lot of detailed knowledge about 10 times as many things as needed to go into the books. And then he started writing the books. And he contrasted that with his approach, which he called the gardener's approach, Mm -hmm. which is that I have these seeds that I'm going to plant and I'm going to water and then I'm going to prune those plants. But I cannot absolutely, definitively control the final shape that they take. Right. So uh, I wanted to share that with you because uh, what you are talking about is an interesting amalgam of both. And I think uh, the real process is always a bit of both. It's never just one of these things, which is that you like I was my, my question to you was this process of planning it out and then getting to the writing part. Uh, it, does it also plan and allocate space for discovery and things that you haven't been able to research and things that you haven't been able to know that you need for the book?
0: To a certain extent, you know, um, now that I do that so because I do this for a living, like I, 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 I write books for a living. You know, I make art for fun, and so they, they, they run on two very different tracks. Because I'm doing it for a living, and I've signed a contract, and I have there's a whole room full of people waiting for stuff to happen. Then there's not as much room for things to go off track. So I can be nine months in and decide, oh. Maybe it should be this instead and go chasing after that. So there's a certain amount of of discipline in saying, I spent a lot of time working on the proposal ahead of time. I spent a lot of time thinking about whether this is really the right way. And I did my research and I did my homework and I made a commitment to do this thing. And this is what it's going to be. If it changes, I have to go have a conversation with a publisher about that. So for instance, with my novels. So I've also written a bunch of novels that are historical fiction and they're based on a true story. And I remember with one of them, when I sold them to the publisher, I said, you know, I would like to be really creative with this series. I don't think these should be cookie cutter. Like, it's not going to be cookie cutter sort of crime fiction where there's a dead body on page three and you know who did it by page 300. I want them to be more like what these women's lives were really like because they, they really lived. They're real people. And I said, I even think it would be interesting to change POV for some of these so some could be written in the first person some in the third person and the publisher was super on board with this idea like yeah let's let's be creative they don't it doesn't have to be a series in that cookie cutter way it's just a bunch of books about these women so there was one I think it was the third book I just had this epiphany in the middle of the night like it wasn't working real well it wasn't super interesting and one night I just woke up in the middle of the night and I said I think this needs to be in the third person and once I started mapping out. That we could be in this character's head for a while and then we could go be in that character's head what happened was i was reading edith wharton at the time and i was like i should write this like an edith wharton book like that's easy she just wrote these amazing you know i'm like i'll do what edith wharton did so i called my editor and i had to make the pitch i had to say look i've started down this road i know you haven't seen any pages yet it was here's what the story is as you know but uh, I was going to tell it this way, but I now realize if we can be in these other characters' heads, then the plot could be structured like this. Yes, I have to rewrite the whole thing from scratch, but I really think I've got it, and I'm, I'll be more or less on schedule. Like, I think I could get it to you by this date, and I could send you some—you know, we had to have a conversation. And she was like, yeah, I'm on. I get what you're saying. You've made a good case for it. Let's give it a try. But that's all done very much within the realm of like, this is my profession and I have to act like a pro- professional. Right. And, you know, Right. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we didn't we didn't go into these novels at all, but we should have. I don't know how I jumped over them because <laughs> I am actually, I should tell you, I uh, last week started reading Girl Waits with Gun.
0: Oh, did you? So, <laughs> okay. yeah, I'm
1: like, I'm almost halfway through. Uh, I was reading This Morning also before mm-hmm. we, rec- we started recording. Okay. And I think she's about... To get a gun, oh I think yes. so. Right. I have no idea. there are lots of turns, yes, but uh I think I'm at a at a spot where I really want her to have a gun now yes, to deal right. with the kind of problems that she's seeing yeah. uh let's let's go to this novel. so you have these novels because you have not only um trespassed on gardening territory where you had no business being and writing books on, you have also trespassed back in time to the 19th century to write historical semi fiction, like it is based on this real account that you were able to find during your research for other things. And then you were fascinated by the story of these three sisters who lived in the US at the end of the 19th century, and one of them becomes one of the first female sheriffs in America. And then you write this series of stories around these three in enigmatic personalities so uh, tell me a little bit about how like this This courage to change lanes, like to feel like you could, what was the reaction around you in this structure that you just described to me in which, you know, you're allowed to do different things, but you have to think about so many other people. And part of that is that you have an identity as this and you are being marketed and Mm -hmm. promoted in a certain way by these people who are also invested in your success and your career. And then to decide that I'm kind of bored, I want to change direction to fiction what was that What was that change like with all of these other factors in place?
0: It was not smooth. You know, I had written a couple of other novels. So in between my earlier nonfiction books were these novels that nobody wanted to publish. Uh, my agents were not, I had two different agents um, over that time period. They were not particularly thrilled. Um, my editor at Algonquin was not particularly thrilled with the Novels. Um, I was too embarrassed to send them out to anyone else because I thought, well, all right, my editor doesn't like them, my agent doesn't like them. What? What? You know, I, I never mind, I guess. But, you know, novels are are pretty much what I read for entertainment. So at a certain point, I was asking myself, like, I'm writing all these nonfiction books, but I don't really read nonfiction for fun. You know, I read nonfiction when I need to find something out, but on a on a vacation on an airplane, I'm going to take a novel with me. Why am I not writing novels? So I kept trying, and they kept not working. And then, um, yeah, after Drunken Botanist, I had stumbled across this story about this woman, like you say, who was a deputy sheriff 100 years ago. And I just fell in love with her. I mean, I really dug around. I dug up her family history. I, I uh, found out as much as I possibly could about her, started to assemble sort of an archive of, of her. No one had heard of her. She's not known among the history of women in law enforcement. Uh, it's a great story. It's a very sort of Hollywood episodic kind of story. So immediately I could see like, oh, this is a novel. And it's not one novel. It's a bunch of novels because look what happens after this. And, you know, I just had this huge archives and I was really in love with them. And I also felt like anyone could have found them, but I'm the one who found them. And if I don't write about them, nobody's going to write about them. It's not like if I had decided to write a novel about Marie Antoinette. Well, anyone can write a novel about Marie Antoinette. We all know who she is. No one knew who this woman was. So I felt this sense of almost obligation. And I was kind of in my early 40s, so it was a good time for like a midlife crisis novel, you know? (laughs) So I just decided I'm going to write this book, and I don't care if anyone publishes it or not. I'm just going to do it, and I can find another way to pay the bills. I'm, I'm all right for a year. And I did. I wrote the book because with a novel, you really have to write it first. You can't really sell it on a proposal unless you're Stephen King. So uh, so I had to write the novel first. And um, uh, my publisher at the time was, I mean, they're super nice. It's not a dig, but they were not thrilled with the idea of me switching over to historical fiction. And, you know, they said, like, if you want to write a novel, it needs to be some sort of botanical novel. You know, right. like. Elizabeth Gilbert had just come out with, um, oh, darn it, the novel about the woman botanist who was into moss. Signature of All Things. So write a novel set in the plant world somehow. That'll be your transition. You can bring your fans along. But that sounds like a, that's a marketing plan that then I have to write the book that fits a marketing plan. And so I'm like, and, that's and not.
1: Shares some keywords with your previous share world. some
0: keywords. Yeah, you have to get married to a book idea. You're really married to it. You know, you got to live with it, whether you like it or not, Um, you're stuck with it. So I wasn't going to do that. And um, yeah, so once again, though, this is one of those deals where I had written a novel. So we had a full manuscript. Um, I had a sense that because these are real people and I have photographs and newspaper clippings and there's art, there's visual stuff that goes along with it. I had this sense that if I had a proposal that shared some of those visuals Then the editor, who's only going to give me about 10 seconds, she's going to open this email on a Monday morning, along with a bunch of other (laughs) emails from agents and decide which ones to look at, that I'm an artist, I understand visuals, so I thought, let's get something, so I... I asked my agent about it. I said, if I made like a PDF with some beautiful images that really conveyed the thing, would you be willing to send that with it? And she goes, yes, but you don't need to do that. I had said that I was going to hire a graphic designer and it would cost like 500 bucks. And she's like, I don't think you should be spending $500. I'm like, I think you misunderstand the power of visuals here. So I had this beautiful thing designed. It looked like an old scrapbook with the newspaper. It looked really cool. And sure enough, this was another one of those deals. It went out to like 18 or 20 editors and people were super excited about it. And there was a lot of hullabaloo. And um, right away, I found a publisher who totally bought into the whole idea of it. And it was like, I'm having a midlife crisis, and someone has decided to fund my midlife crisis like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> for seven books. Like that's I, I, I know. I, I, not, I not only like the 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 titles of the, I haven't had a chance to finish even one, so I can only comment on how they look from the outside. The plot reads interesting. Uh, the covers are beautiful, like, and I love I love yeah. the titles, like. There's what I'm really admiring about all of this stuff is also that, you know, you're obviously fueled by your creative desires. Like it's pure creativity and the joy of creative expression, but it is living inside this world of in which things get done a certain way. Yeah. And you are able to find those knobs and those levers and turn them. So I think the fact that you're expressing yourself creatively while turning the levers of what success looks like and what makes a book work, I think that's what I find the most, uh, like the most fascinating about this. Like, I I just love this aspect because I can imagine so many people wanting to do things a certain way and at various points running into this kind of opposition or mm-hmm. a little bit of friction or a bit of pushback and reacting yeah. adversely, either Uh, either reacting in a brusque way, so you dismiss it, which is not healthy, it doesn't even lead to a good relationship, but also even maybe, you know, not standing up for yourself, to be told that this is too risky, and then to not do it is so easy. To start to rely on the words of these people whom you first have to start to trust. So part of that trust is that you are going to rely on them for the things that they are experts at then to still push back against it takes a bit of a bit of courage and a bit of conviction of your own self.
0: I mean, it's very easy to be talked out of any kind of idea. And I've let myself be. And in fact, that was part of the thing with the novels is that I said to myself, I have been I've been talked out of writing books before and I'm done with that. I'm not going to let anyone talk me out of a book again. Um, Life is short. You know, do your things. And I think at a, at a certain point in your 40s or 50s, you start to know people who who die. Like friends of yours die. Maybe maybe someone you know who's 60 dies and you're 43 and you're like, huh, 17 years. Mm-hmm. It's not as much time as I was killed. Not. You know, and you start to sort of get get into this, like, I still have lots of time to do the things, but maybe I should start doing it. Maybe yeah. now is not the time to keep <laughs> putting it off. So, Yeah. yeah. I think that's a big piece of it. But I really have to say, like, I, at, at every turn, I think my luck has run out. I mean, literally, as I'm sitting here talking to you today, I have an idea for another book sort of cooking in the back of my head. And I I am convinced that no one's going to want that book. <laughs> I, I really, I'm not pretending. I mean, this is not false modesty. Like, no, I'm really yeah. sure, like, oh.
1: No, I, I, I'm laughing because I completely relate with that. Like, yeah. I think any anytime I have any idea about anything... My first reaction is that I'm probably the only person who cares about this. Right. Nobody else cares at all. Every yeah. I've been writing every week, and every week I hit publish on my Substack, and every week I think I'm the only one who cares about this subject. Why am I doing this? Yeah, and I have to sort of answer that question to myself again and again. But I like a part of me wants it to become easier over time and in some ways it does.
0: It is, you know, when you are a writer, you are always thinking about an audience. You're writing for someone else. You're not writing so you can have a Word document living on your computer. Um, And this is another thing where I think, you know, again, I love the contrast between art and, uh, and writing because I can make art purely for the experience of making it. In the moment, the hour that I spend making a painting is 95% of what I love about it. If other people say they like it or don't like it, it's sort of meaningless. And I'm sure you've had this experience too. I just recently had this ridiculous experience on uh, Instagram where suddenly I was posting these drawings that were getting bajillions more likes than I ever have before. And I'm sure it was just some weird thing with the algorithm, but it's like, it didn't make the art more satisfying for me.
1: Right. It was just yeah. like,
0: this is weird that a thousand people like that ink drawing. <laughs> I've never read a thousand people, you know, but it's not for making art for me is not for an audience. It's not for anyone else to like. It's, it's, it's sort of like running. You do it for the experience of going on the run. You don't, but with writing, you really are making it for someone else to read. Otherwise it's just sitting there all by itself. So there's finally... Different art forms. All art forms are different, and that's one way that they're different. But the other thing I would say about this, and again, this isn't my idea. I have to give Nicholas Wilton credit for this, but he 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 talks about that we all have this idea or we all have this ability to have preferences. Not talent, not innate creativity, but preferences. We all know instantly. So if I hold up two objects, so right now I'm holding up a coffee cup and a pen, and I say, which of these do you like? you could immediately pick one. There are two random objects, right? But you already know which one you like. You don't know why, maybe. You like one of them more than the other. And so if you do that in your art, you're like, I like this and not that. I like this and not that. Or with writing or whatever. And you migrate towards the things you like. What he says is, you get better at doing it in your life also. You get better at knowing what you like and you don't like. and, And so your life gets better. And then that feeds over into your art, and you get better at doing it with your art. I like this, I don't like that. And your art gets better. And then your life starts to get a little better and they become this feedback loop with Mm -hmm. one another. And so I think the reason I'm saying this is that I think that the importance of doing your art, whatever it is, writing or whatever it is, doing it your way and doing it for the reasons that are specific to you, that's not a guarantee that someone's going to write a big check. Like Hollywood is not going to call because they heard you were staying true to your vision. There's no promise of that. <laughs> There's no reason why my career has gone the way it has. I could easily still be at my day job and kind of writing on the on the side. It's been a lot of a lot of dumb luck and and other things have come into that. But what you are guaranteed of if you do those if you do sort of stay true to your thing and start to kind of learn really what you really like or not like, not what other people want. What you're guaranteed of is that your life will get better and, and your art will get better. It'll get more interesting anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's
0: the, that's the reason to do it, regardless of what external success may or may not ever look like.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Like uh, all, all of those things that you said, like, and I'm also very eager now to parse writing and art in these, in these different lights, because a lot of the things you said are the things that I wanted to ask you already. And I found some of your answers very intriguing, like especially when you speak about uh, art, and you compare it to, to running, because I was going to compare it to writing. Uh, in my analogy being that art is something like, as you said, I really enjoy the doing of it, of my joy comes from the time I spent doing it. And this is something I try to repeat to participants in my workshops Mm -hmm. as well, that, you know, you really have to let yourself make bad drawings because once you do that, you realize you feel just as good about those ones as you get, you derive the same, you extract the same joy from making a bad drawing as you did from making a good drawing.
0: Yeah,
1: How good it turned out afterwards is so irrelevant to the, like the, the, the great joy of making art is the time you spend making it. Yes. After that, everything else is just cherry on top or irrelevant, or you can neglect it, or you can get success from it. But writing does not work that way, at least for no. me. No. <laughs> it's it's tedious in the doing. It is yes. amazing in the having done. Yes. And running sort of works for me at least I feel running started for me in this realm of like uh, comparison to writing like something that felt only good having done it oh and then as you get into it more and more you start to look forward to it and you start to look forward to the time you spend actually running and then it converts towards this this uh, this uh, similarity towards making art so uh, I, want, I want to get some more differences out from you about, and by comparing them in different ways. And one of the easiest ones, obviously, is delayed versus instant gratification. Do you feel like having a, a source of instant gratification or having a creative outlet that also gives you instant gratification, it helps you with the stuff that doesn't instantly gratify?
0: Yes, I would advise any writer to go find something that gives them instant gratification whether it's art or cooking or just something where the reward is right then. Because it would be so great if a whole crowd of people start cheering behind you when you write <laughs> a great sentence, right? But it doesn't happen. And when people do compliment you on your writing, it's, it's months or year, more likely years later when it no longer matters to you and it doesn't feel good anymore. It would be like if someone came up and told me they loved that outfit I had on on March 18th. 2018. Like right. I don't even <laughs> own that thing anymore. I gave that to Goodwill, and now you're telling me you liked it. Like I don't even. So uh, it's very disconnected, and you do need that reward cycle. You got to have something in your life that you get right. instant, instant feedback from. But can I tell you the my theory about why? People don't like writing. Like writers all complain about how awful it is to write. Artists never complain about how terrible paint <laughs> like I hate painting. Yeah. I can't believe I have to go paint now. They never say that. No. So, so have you read this book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow? I have. Okay. So you know about system one and system two, right? Yeah. All right. So I'll just say very briefly that that, the idea is that there are certain things that are um, really difficult for our brains to process through and we have to work really hard to do it. So if somebody said to me, what's 24 times 38, it would take me forever to figure that out. It would be hard. And by the end of it, I'd be exhausted and frustrated. And then there's other things that we do more or less effortlessly because uh, we've just gotten to a so two plus two is four. And it's, I don't have to think, I, there's no work involved in it. And so where this, where this, and some things can move from one to the other. So it can start off being like learning to play guitar. And at first it's really slow, but then you develop a little muscle memory and it becomes more automatic. And so where I think this applies to writing is that I think writing never gets out of that difficult, laborious, draining stage. There is no muscle memory to writing, even if people claim that they've developed a certain facility with it. Every time you take words, which we all use all day long, and you try to put them into an interesting combination and get them on paper, it is that ex- freshly exhausting, laborious process. Whereas with art, I think we can get into that more meditative flow state. You can get develop some muscle memory. You can develop some ways of working where you're not it's it, the, one of the ways he describes it in the book is, have you ever had that experience of you get in the car to go somewhere and you arrive at your destination and you don't remember the drive at all because you can do it without thinking. And I can definitely do that with art. I can look down and go, I have no idea how I did. Th- I don't even remember doing that. Right. So, so what I, t- what I say to writers is the reason it's so hard is that your brain is doing this grinding laborious work all the time. It is exhausting. I tell one thing. I tell my students, and I think I even put this in one of my classes, is like you have to go eat. Like you, you literally, your brain will be drained of glucose, and you need to go downstairs and get yourself a snack. Like you Mm -hmm. have to take care of your body, and so I, I really do think that that's what it boils down to, and that's why every writer needs a hobby that can feel more like a flow state. Like guitar would be great, knitting would be great. Because it's not just the instant gratification, but it's find something you can do where the process is inherently pleasurable. Making cupcakes mm-hmm. sounds like a delightful thing to do. It's inherently pleasurable. Probably. I don't make cupcakes, but it sounds, sounds great.
1: <laughs> so right.
0: that's my real thing about the, about the processes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And thinking in uh, terms of system 1 and system 2 is also interesting because uh, that one of this like you mentioned uh, before also one of them is using language and the other is a non verbal expression right and even though we use language all the time mm-hmm. we are in in monologues included and uh, all the texting we do all the text we imbibe so all the text that come at us on our phones and our screens despite that it remains a system two job to work in words and letters and combinations of those whereas yes. art something that you don't like you don't create art as much as a, as a normal person as as a non artist right. your interaction with art might be severely limited but getting into the flow state with it is quite quite easy like you can even in your first ever painting, get into a state of flow and start enjoying this process of doing things. Whereas stringing words together, unless it's a limerick, is not going to have a lot of quick gratification. Uh, No. So it's,
0: you know, I'll just say, I think we, um, because we use words all day, every day, all of us do, no matter who you are, you're always talking, you're you're always listening. The idea that you're now going to take words and make something special out of them is incredibly mm-hmm. difficult. Whereas if you mm-hmm. put, you know, a pen loaded up with a new kind of ink in it, like I got, I got nothing to go on here. It's like, it's a new kind of pen with a new kind of ink. I don't, this is all brand new. So I do think it's that taking the mundane and elevating it into something special that writers grapple with. It's different from music, for instance, like how many people are bursting into song while you're walking down the street? No one. Right. So you pick up your guitar and immediately you're doing something that we don't do all day, every day.
1: Yeah. 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 That's so true. And yeah. And and. Also, this uh, applies also to teaching, like you were mentioning teaching art versus teaching writing. And I was thinking in the same way that, you know, teaching someone to draw and or paint and getting them to enjoy it, getting them to take two, three steps forward is so much easier than teaching someone to write. Because teaching someone to write feels almost like, and I'm just training for an analogy here, it's almost like you're teaching them simultaneously to construct a paintbrush (laughs) And meanwhile, you're working with your paintbrush and their job is to make an easel, make a paintbrush and create their own paints and then start to paint. like all of those, all those tools of expression have to come from inside you in this, in this way that they don't have to with art. Because in art, we are letting these colors or these lines that we choose, we are letting them become lots of things. Yeah. We don't know sometimes what they're becoming. We don't have control over it. Always drawings go wonky. You try to say something it tries to look like something else and then that becomes an expression of another kind that you didn't anticipate. So there's all this discovery whereas one seems a more deliberate and determined process.
0: Yeah. When I am teaching people writing and again this is why this is why teaching online actually appealed to me because if I have to get into a classroom with people and students are going to An unfortunate thing that happens in writing workshops is students are going to read their work out loud or they're going to turn something into you and you're all going to sit around and say what's wrong with it. And it's like, I don't care about the thing you're writing right now. Like, I care about your life as a writer that's going to go on for 20 years. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you what's worked for me to manage my day and manage my process. I can give you little tricks that I use to get myself going. I can tell you how I organize my research and what my approaches are to interviewing people. Um, but but i can't take your 3 pages and tell you how to make them three better pages like it's that right. should, that should never be what it is so yeah like my writing classes are really all about getting through the day right like i <laughs> so like one I, I was writing books set in the 1910s so it's important that the language be from the 1910s and not from today so i have a whole row i'm looking at them right now i have all of these novels that were written in the 1910s sitting on my shelf uh-huh. So like a trick I'll do is, let's say I'm on page 86 of the manuscript and I'm feeling stuck, is I'll randomly pull five of these books off the shelf and open them to page 86 and just see what was happening on those pages or even start copying them down in a yellow legal pad by hand to just start writing in the language of a 1910 novelist. Right. That's just a technique, right? So I'm just showing you how to get through the next hour is what I'm doing. I'm showing you how to survive the next hour of today's writing session. I don't know how (laughs) to fix your novel. And so all of my writing classes are just those kinds of things um, that, that are much more concrete than any sort of conceptual thing about plot structure or anything like that.
1: That's so true. And sometimes, you know, you can have earnest, sincere students who will not know to have these different expectations from a writing workshop versus an art workshop because you mm-hmm. can leave an art workshop with distinct tools and yeah. ideas and tricks that will help you. You can copy exactly the process yes. of another painter and still be making your own painting, which is distinctly you. Right. And this is something that does not exist with words.
0: It doesn't. You can do that in a writing workshop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, another difference I want to parse now is painting versus urban sketching so you do you do a lot of photography when you're on when you're traveling and i've been able to see a lot of the 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 paintings you made from those photographs some of them have been digital some of them have been uh, analog media um, i want to ask you about the difference for uh, now considering the place that art has in your life and the ways that it fulfills you and we've gotten into that already what is the difference between working outdoors versus working at your desk
0: Well, it's kind of changed over the years. So I started out oil painting and I took a class every Wednesday night and we worked from photographs cause you know, it's after dark. um, (laughs) where I lived on the coast, it's always cold year long. There's no summer there. So we're not going to go stand outside in the cold and paint night scenes. Right. So we're working from (laughs) photographs. And even when I was at home in between classes, if I, if, and when I was painting in between classes, um, I was kind of doing it on little breaks from my writing schedule. So I'm not going to pack up my oil paints and go out into the world. So I'm always, I was always working from photographs and I was more interested in painting cityscapes. So mm-hmm. I would take these photographs walking across Fifth Avenue and I would take a photograph in the middle of the intersection looking straight down. And that's what I wanted to paint. Well, you can't set up an easel in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Right. Anyway, and certainly painting busy cityscapes with people walking by, um, tough in oil. So I started out with that. And so then sketching came into it. Um, In like 2016, I started taking, finally there were a few online classes to take. So Craftsy was the thing at the time and Jim Richards Mm -hmm. had a class there and several people who you've had on your show has had classes there. And I binged on all those classes. And now I knew how to draw and do something in a sketchbook which was really my idea for I wanted something more portable for mostly when I travel, not necessarily around the house uh, in my everyday life, but on the road. So that's when I kind of learned how to do that. And they were two very separate things. So like I would do Mm -hmm. oil paintings inside from photos, or I would take a sketchbook and I would go somewhere and I would sketch. And they were completely different things. And then um, I... I saw a deep corn exhibit here in Portland and it was a lot of his works on paper and it was all this ink. And I was like, Oh, I think I need to go buy a bottle of ink, not just ink <laughs> and a pen, but a bottle of it in a big old dip pen and make a mess. And so I did, and that's not super portable. And so then I start pulling out photographs only just doing ink drawings. And I'm like, wait a minute. I could take that ink and the watercolor that I've been traveling with I could also do that at home. There's not a rule against that. I can, right. I can do these same cityscapes and stuff that are sort of tricky to do out in the world. So then the two kind of became a little more mixed up. And now I'm so much happier with sketchbooks than I am painting on canvases. Another, <laughs> This is another one of those outcome things, right? You do a big oil painting yeah. and then where does it go? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> I don't want to sell them. I don't, I, don't, I can't be bothered with that. And they're not all good enough to sell. You know, oil painters don't necessarily have a sketchbook practice. So everything right. they do is on a stretched canvas that they paid 28 bucks for. And then you feel obligated that it has to live somewhere. Uh, but then I realized like, oh, if everything's in a sketchbook, I can do gouache. You know, people, I don't do acrylic, but people do. Um, mm-hmm. I can do ink, I can do watercolor, I can do markers, I can do colored pencil. Mm-hmm. But they're in these nice, neat little books that can just sit on a shelf. And I don't have to, there's no disposal problem at the end of it. Right.
1: So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's such a that's such a big part. Like, uh, you don't need storage space. You don't need to think about if you couldn't store it, how you're going to get rid of right. it. <laughs> right. And also, there's a, a sketchbook has this sense of uh, being a personal space, like the sketchbook yes. slash journal of your life, like yeah. it has this sense that it's for you. And that makes it uh, gives it the opportunity to uh, gives you the opportunity to be more forgiving. Like you yeah. can do things inside this thing. You, you can you can play games. The cost is not so high.
0: Right. It doesn't have to be finished art. And I although I confess that I have like different tiers of sketchbooks, right? Like I have the spiral bound sketchbooks where I can make any kind of mess and do anything and then I have like the nicer sketchbooks where I'm I'm drawing or painting something that I kind of already know that it's going to go okay it's right. not so much of an experiment and yeah. that's the one that I might pull out and show to someone mm-hmm. right whereas the spiral bound one I would only show another artist because no one else would be impressed with it. The half yeah, but starts. but
1: but it's so good to have like uh like you mentioned having two different sketchbooks as yeah. a, like a like a little a silly thing. But I think it's such a powerful thing to have it because you know as you draw more and more, like I uh, I had this crisis at the start of this year. I found that I'm drawing so confidently, so many things that. Uh, as soon as my frequency of drawing reduced, like I Mm. stopped going out to draw as often as I was before, partly has to do with, you know, the hangover from winter that, you know, you're not habituated to stepping out every single day. And what that does is you start to play safe Mm -hmm. and you don't venture into drawing things that make you uncomfortable. You stay within the things that you are good at, even if they're new things, at least these are the things that I know how to draw. So I will draw them. This is the way that I know how to draw. So I will draw just in this way because yes. I'm only drawing once a week. And having a separate sketchbook is a nice way to think here. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. Right. So like my, my workshops start like this. Like I ask all my participants to say right on the top of your sketchbook or your page, whatever you have. Today, I'm going to make a lot of bad drawings. Yes. Or this is a sketchbook full of bad drawings. Just, yeah. just say it, put it into the universe, and then you will let yourself do silly things. And then those silly things, some of them will become really, really great things.
0: Right, right. Well, and that's how you figure it out. And this is a thing, it makes me so sad when people say, oh, I, you know, I can't draw or I can't paint because it's a technical skill and anyone can mm-hmm. learn it. And you tell Absolutely. people that and it kind of blows their mind. But, um, but it's absolutely true. Anyone, it's, it's a set of solid mechanical techniques that anyone can be taught. Um, and, and, and I wish people understood that more because, and, and the way you learn it is to do a bunch of things badly as you go because it is a rote process and you're, you know, you're bad at drawing people. You will get better if you take a class and someone suggests a few approaches and you start implementing those and, and it changes over time. And you can see it change. And this is another thing like with writing. Like I have no sense if my writing's getting better. How would I mm-hmm. know that? I can't oh. see that. Whereas <laughs> yeah. I can look back at paintings from ten years ago and go, Oh, I had a much better idea of how to approach that. I'm gonna do it right now, as a matter of fact. And yeah. I'll show you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're so we're so heavy on text and writing and words, but really our sense of things that are nonverbal are so much stronger. Our instincts around art is like any person knows instantly when they look at a painting whether they like it or not.
0: Yes, yes. Now,
1: the conflict might come into this aspect of whether you're supposed to like it or not. And, Mm -hmm. oh, I don't like it, but it's a Rembrandt, so I'm supposed to like it. But uh, with art, you instinctly have this, you have this sense of does this did did this move me mm-hmm. and words need so much more time and so many more filters and so much more quantity before they can get in and sort of percolate down mm-hmm. to a level where we allow them to move us and then we're like okay this was a good book or this this argument makes sense or this article I agree with there's so much so much you need to disarm people with like I had this I was thinking about this because uh, even when I started uh, drawing a little bit, as I started writing more and more, I started making web comics. <laughs> and my web comics were stick figures because I didn't know how to draw any better. But what I was finding was that it's so much easier to, uh, once once you make things visual, suddenly the way we approach them, the way we react to them, like me telling somebody that I hate Ex politician versus me making a little joke with a funny drawing saying I, which conveys that I hate ex politician. Right. There is such a lot of difference in how people react to it, how people embrace it. And a lot of this is just, it's not, I mean, it's not uh, deliberately thought out that this is how I'm going to react to a painting and this is how I'm going to react if somebody says it in words. But it's just part of the human experience, how we over centuries have regarded images and how we have come to relate with images versus how we have come to relate with words. So uh, no question yet. Uh, My question was... (laughs) Well, no, I
0: would just say it is a difficult thing, Um, again, between writing and drawing, is that you can take in a painting at one glance. And uh, a book requires that you sit down and engage with it. And it also has a lot to do with what kind of mood you're in, what what you're up for. Um, so there's books that I hated the first time around. And then a few years later, I picked them up. I'm like, this is fantastic. Why didn't anyone tell me about this book? And everyone's like, it was a bestseller like five years ago. Where were you? You know, so sometimes (laughs) you have to be in a different space. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. You're not, you're not ready for that idea or you're not in, like, you're not in the, in the mood for that kind to be tickled from that direction in your brain. Like there are so many nuances to this, which, yeah. And. Uh, So I guess uh, something I want to ask about with respect to gratification, and we were talking about writing and uh, versus art. And of course, all of this is something that has been the way it has forever, like ever since we've been writing and humans have been drawing, art has given gratification through process, not necessarily through result, Mm -hmm. and writing has worked the other way and writing has been difficult to appreciate and arts have been easier and more instantaneous to appreciate or to dislike. (laughs) Uh, I want to ask you, because you've recently started writing on Substack, but of course you've had a blog before that as well, uh, I want to ask you whether Substack has changed this gratification process in writing. Like, Do you still feel like the same uh, writer screaming, throwing their words into (laughs) the void until they make sense? Or do you feel like there is uh, you know, an echo coming back from the void now.
0: Well, you know, I think th- this is another sort of your hobby can have a hobby. Like when blogging first came about, it was great for that. You could say whatever you want, however you wanted to to say it. And so I think it became a great outlet for writers who didn't want a, a filter or an editor. Um, I I was in the garden writing world, and I helped found this blog called Garden Rant, which is still going. And we would write about plants we hate. Well, there is not a garden magazine anywhere at that time who would pay you to write about plants you hate. That was not allowed. You weren't supposed to hate a plant, so right. um, so being able to do that kind of stuff uh, was so much fun. And so my, I started. I, I always had a newsletter in the sense that there was a thing on my website, and you could sign up for a mailing list. But I didn't really use it for much. And right before I moved to Portland, so in about 2017, I finally got sort of an idea for a newsletter I could send out that would actually be fun for me to do. That was Mm -hmm. sort of short, and it was just about a bunch of different random things. And it was definitely not a "please buy my book kind of newsletter. It would just be about whatever I found interesting. And just sort of all at once, I got a vision for it. And I'm like, okay, that I will do. So the thing that I'm doing on Substack now, I've been doing on MailChimp, for like Mm -hmm. the last five years and i honestly Mm -hmm. i just moved it over to substack because i got frustrated with how much mailchimp was charging me and considering they don't market it at all they don't they're not interested in what you're doing and when i when i moved over to substack i said in that first newsletter just sort of like in case you guys are wondering this looks a little different it's because i've migrated it over Um, And I said, you know, you may have heard that Substack is a thing where you can charge people and have subscriptions. And I don't have any ideas for anything I would charge you guys money for, but um, I'm doing it. But even the act of moving it over here and doing it makes me feel like I should make this newsletter about something because Mm -hmm. people will start a Substack and it will be about a thing. And Mm -hmm. so it's making me think that maybe I need to have a thing, but I couldn't figure out what that was, and I skipped a few months just because I was trying to decide, and then I just decided, never mind, I'll just send this out. And everyone, (laughs) not everyone, but everybody who wrote back to me on that were like, please don't make it about a thing. Just keep doing what you're doing. I think it's great. You know, Like literally sometimes in my newsletter, it'll be like Trader Joe's has this new chickpea salad that you can get at lunch, I re- you should try it, it's pretty good, and you can mix it with the other Trader Joe's salad, and then you've got two salads, and that's the dumbest thing, right? It well, can, uh, it can to, just be to people
1: who've moved from the U.S. to Canada and now no longer have access to Trader Joe's, there you go. It's it it has a lot of value for <laughs> for some of us.
0: Right, right, yeah. So it's sort of like here I am on Substack, and, and people are subscribing via the Substack network, and I'm thinking, right. why are they signing up for this? I mean, why yeah. would anyone sign up to read this? I don't have a hook, I don't have a thing, and I have thought <laughs> about having a thing, but right now you know writing a book is kind of all consuming and the, and and even even now with my more relaxed approach to it it is the thing that comes first nothing else gets ahead of book writing in my world and everything else has to come to a screeching halt if the book needs more attention so in that sense it's like i don't have the energy to put into making another thing because i can't yeah. pull away from the book so so i don't know i mean it's a cool platform I love the uh, idea of it. I really love it for writers who do want to write about a thing. Like if you want to write about vintage <laughs> office supplies, then make a sub stack about vintage office supplies and you will find your tribe. And, and, and I love it for that. Or serialized fiction or serialized nonfiction or whatever it is. And my hope is that they stay true to that. I mean, my yeah. hope, my hope is that they don't go down the, um, Uh, Silicon Valley Road of they were awesome when they started and a lot of creators were making a livelihood and figuring out a new thing. And then they got so much venture capital money or they got bought that they had to change their business model. And it's not that anymore.
1: Yeah. 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 I know. (laughs) The other
0: shoe, like when is the other shoe going to drop? So I very much hope that that never happens and that they remain true to this idea of, look, we're going to make this thing that's beautiful for writers and beautiful for readers. And all we want is, you know, 10% of a subscription fee, which is cheap. And you guys go and do your things and we're just going to help you do it. Like, I hope yeah. they stay that.
1: Yeah, I know. I In love fact, it. Uh, it's it's funny you say that because, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm a Substack fellow this year. Yes. And part of the fellowship program was that I had the chance and I still have access to interacting with a lot of the people who work at Substack. And this is actually literally what I said. Like, this oh. was my only question oh. that... Are you going? like, you know, you have a lot of data, you have a lot of information, you have a lot of crowd coming in because of creators. This is exactly where Facebook was. And then Facebook decided that it just wanted to make money and it did not care at all about anything else. And it pumped the algorithms and the algorithms changed this very fundamental thing that you're not necessarily going to be able to see the person you signed up to see. You're going to see who Facebook thinks is better better suited for you. And so every creator sort of hopes now that in this ecosystem, at least, would hope that I become the thing that Facebook thinks somebody else wants to see. So you are no more interacting with your viewers or your fans, but you're trying to appease the Facebook gods. And the Facebook gods are fickle and they they change their mind very often. So they have us jumping through these hoops. So what I would ask you uh, to consider about Substack is that indeed, just like a lot of your writing does not have a lane, your Substack does in one sense have a very distinct identity that it is very distinctly you, which is that you don't have a lane right? and you talk about different things. And so there are two ways that I would ask you to see your Substack audience. There is an audience that discovers you on Substack and they sign up for some reason. Hopefully you can put out some polls and ask them to tell you and they'll tell you. And But there is also the audience that you already bring to Substack. Mm -hmm. They are... The fans of your books or fans of your art or any of the combination. And they've, a Substack is the way for them to start a relationship with you. And so your email coming to their inbox is this private equation that you share with them. Right. And sometimes they enjoy the Trader Joe's lesson, sometimes they <laughs> love the 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 non-alcoholic cocktail recipe that you shared recently that uh-huh. was also quite interesting. Actually your recipes are making me want to make this little bit of extra effort to make a cocktail because I am so lazy uh-huh. that as soon as there are 3 or 4 steps I know that I'm not going to do right, it. Right, right. But I just read a very nice recipe on your uh, about uh, crushing some uh, muddying it with blackberries, which oh. means to crush them. Yes. So I didn't know that muddying means to crush them, but that makes sense to me now. But I'm going to I'm going to try that recipe. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so. I have sort of kind of come to the conclusion of all the various things I wanted to ask you. And <laughs> we had this super fun, super long conversation. We did manage to bring art into it as well. So I'm glad that no one can say this episode was not about art, right. uh, at least not technically. But um, so I want to close with this, uh, with with some ideas that I want you to give to our listening audience that has stuck with us through a more than three hour long conversation. So from all these different subjects that have captured your interest for either for good or for a period of a few years, uh, all the various learnings you've done, what are some books that people should read on this general subject of engaging more with their natural world? I feel like that is such a profound thing that we are losing and whether it's through writing whether it's through observation or through art there are so many opportunities now to engage with this world so what are what are some ways that you would advocate what are some books or any kind of media that you would advocate people to listen to or read or find out
0: Oh that's interesting um, you know I, I, I'm looking over at my bookshelf right now to see if this book's on the shelf um, I I always has I've always loved Sue Hubble's uh, books. She she wrote a wonderful book about bees. Um, I think it's called A Book of Bees. That was kind of like an early writing manual for me. I mean, it's a book about her life, living on a some land out in the country somewhere and raising bees. And she had such a wonderful way of writing about both her life and about bees um, together that I just really admired. And now mm-hmm. I think there's more and more writers who do that. I think it's become sort of a popular genre in a way. But those are always the books that interest me, are the ones where people are, are again, it's this idea of one and a half things, you know, where people are kind of writing yeah. about the thing, but they're kind of writing about something else. Um, yeah. Hard, like one of me- my
1: early books like this was also Bill Bryson. Uh, sure. Bill Bryson wrote this book, The Big, uh, The uh, History of Nearly Everything, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Yeah. and. To, on the on the surface, you would think, why should I like? Why should I want to know about geology and paleontology? But it's about a person on this journey to learn things with their curiosity, and right. that is the the and a half part of one and a half things, yes. which really gives it that reason to keep going through it. And then you take all of those one and a half things.
0: Yeah. It's harder for me to read those kind of books anymore because I know too much about how the sausage is made. <laughs> so I'll be reading along and I'm like, that sounds like something they just got off Wikipedia. That has the ring of, I don't think that's quite right or whatever. Like, I'm too right. critical now. It's unfortunately, it's ruined me for a lot of things. You've seen but behind
1: the veil. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well. Um, yeah. Again, I I love that kind of writing um, and across any subject. So whatever subject you're into, there's some there's some great writer who's um, who's really gotten off into it. You know, as an example, there's a wonderful book about the Florida Keys written by uh, Joy Somebody, and I'm going to have to look it up. Uh, we may have to put it in the show notes, but uh-huh. um, it's a travel guide written by someone who was not a travel guide writer, and uh, it's uh, Joy Williams is her name. So she's a novelist, and she's one of those people who's really like a writer's writer. Uh, You know, you got to really be a writer to be into Joy Williams. But she wrote a guide to the Florida Keys kind of just for money. She lived down there. It's the best travel book in the world because it's so (laughs) digressive and so opinionated and it doesn't matter that it's no longer up to date and that particular restaurant has closed because that's not why you're reading it and she gets right. way off into the environmental issues and she gets off into you know all the issues surrounding the as you can imagine the Florida Keys and overpopulation and whatever the weird history of it the colonialism by you know all of that is is in there so those are the kind of books it is hard to find them but um those are the kinds of things that I really seek out on any Subject,
1: Yeah, Yeah. it it also sounds to me like you seek out people who are defying authority in some way to write about a subject like people who don't qualify traditionally as travel guide writers. Like I'm even thinking now of the protagonist of Girl Waits With Gun, like Constance Cobb, being somebody who, you know, she uh, like this setting is in which you can clearly see that women have choices restricted. They don't have the freedom to live on their own terms. They don't have the freedom to do what they want. And Mm -hmm. so many prescriptive ideas and uh, chains are upon them from society and family. And within that, they're trying to find their freedom and they're struggling against it. And they're not able to they're not able to make sense of why they have to follow these rules or why it must be this way. And so much of your of these books, uh, these uh, like at least the ones that have sprung to your mind also seem to be people who are treading, who are trespassing on exclusive territory.
0: That's true. I do love that. Uh, One of my favorite books in the world. And you should read this one if you haven't. Uh It's called Out of Sheer Rage and it's by Jeff Dyer. Jeff spelled the British way with a G. Uh, uh, and this is a book about his inability to write a book about D.H. Lawrence. So so this book is a, is a catalog of his failures to write this book. And it is the funniest, most brilliant thing. I heard him read an excerpt of it on This American Life a million years ago. And I'm driving down, it's one of those moments when I'm driving down the freeway, he's reading this right. thing. I can't believe how good it is. My head is exploding. I had to get off the freeway and go directly to a bookstore and buy it. I'm like, this cannot wait until I reach my destination. I, oh, must, wow. I must own it right this second. Um, it's that good. And yeah, and so that one of the reasons I love that book is that there have been these famous figures in history that I've been interested in and thought, I think I could write an interesting book about this. But like what? Like they don't need another biography. They've got there's already a biography. They're very well known, but Uh I don't know. I think there's there's still a little unexplored corner of this, my relationship with this person. And that's what Jeff Dyer did with that book. And I think it's and actually he's an interesting writer to look at if you're interested in writers who are all over the map. He's written books of jazz criticism. He's written interesting art criticism, which is so high-flown that I can like barely follow it. And then he <laughs> writes these incredibly hilarious sort of essay um, style, personal essay style books that are you just right. love and devour. Yeah,
1: Interesting. Thank you for this recommendation. That's great. Oh, yeah. Any, anything else you can think of? Look
0: it up. Well, another example, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners already know David Foster Wallace's Mm -hmm. Um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which is his Uh account of taking a cruise. So it's him on board a cruise ship. And it is is the most excruciatingly detailed analysis of every moment of cruise ship life. It will definitely make you never take a cruise. I have
1: to say, I find him the kind of writer who would write excruciatingly detailed analysis. Like I could not... I could not get through Infinite Jest. I, no. I I'm one of the people who couldn't do it.
0: But you should read a supposedly fun thing. I'll never do again. And th- again, mm-hmm. the great thing there is: let's say you want to be a travel writer. Boy, if that is like the best piece of travel writing ever written, and it's about a horrible trip that you should definitely not take, <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: That's a fantastic. great recommendation. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Oh, for please sure.
0: read it. You'll love it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for giving me so much time. Thank you for giving me so much trivia. I know so many things that I'm going to just <laughs> casually drop into conversations now. <laughs> and thank you for bringing us to art and urban sketching. And I'm so I'm so uh, happy to see not only the things that work for you, but the things that continue to don't work, <laughs> continue to not work, in the sense that it tells me that some of these things that I struggle against I should accept are going to remain this way. Like, I berate myself for not being faster with my right, for not, you know, having this flow with my writing that I have with my art. So it is good to know that sometimes those things are ephemeral, that that state of flow as a writer is a very short-lived thing. It's like surfing. Yes. Only a few seconds are very much, you know, going exactly perfectly. You are surfing. Yeah. But uh, everything around it is quite messy and involves falling into water. Most and of getting it, yes. trying to not drown
0: <laughs> i know for sure
1: so uh, i have yeah. i've taken a lot because uh, i feel you know we we look to do some uh, like we look at people who are accomplished we think that they have solved all the problems that i am facing and that surely success means that i am not facing these obstacles anymore but obstacles are a part of the journey and we are constantly taking this journey again and again is what i've gotten from today
0: Yeah, exactly. I know. I I don't feel like I'm ever there. And I finally just had to make peace with the fact that there is no there there. I should have known that all along. But yeah. (laughs) Well, this has been really fun. You know, I love the podcast. And uh, when you invited me, I told you that I didn't feel like I was podcast worthy because you've interviewed all my favorite artists. And I just love knowing everything about their process. So thanks for having me on. I, I think we... Just like when we were in Amsterdam and we just sat and sketched and talked, I feel like we could just keep doing this all day long, but all good things must end.